1: What do
2: you normally like listen to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> <No. laughs> Chart music.
3: You pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chop Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham. And as always, I'm joined by two people who know more about stuff than this twat here talking to you right now. That first person is Neil Kulkarni. Hey, up Neil, how are we, mate?
4: Hello, Al, fine. Much like the citizens of uh, Sheffield in the first 20 minutes of Fred, So I'm kind of busily going about my mundane day to day activities whilst keeping an eye on the news. Good man. Just in case I might need to put a hand to my mouth and piss in the precinct anytime soon. Um, yeah, but other than that, fine.
3: Good, good, good. Our second guest is none other than Simon Price. Hey, up, Simon. How are we, mate? Hey, I'm not bad, Al. Good. So, is there anything to relate to us since we last got together around the the chart music stove or whatever? Yeah, I've I've <laughs> moved house. A stove? fuck yes. hell. Yeah, You
5: you're cooking up fat beats on the. I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I, I speak to you now from my vinyl dungeon, which is. Very, very exciting. At the moment, I'm just surrounded by boxes and boxes um, of CDs and LPs, but um, gradually it's taking shape, and it's going to be the ultimate man cave and sort of, you know, late-night party room and... um, I can't. i have basically been reunited with my own record collection because I've been living in absolute kind yeah. of squalor and chaos for the last five years, where I literally could not reach my record shelves. And just oh, the sheer rubbish. joy, the sheer joy of being able to sort of like look at the spines of those records, and you know, I'm finding them way in alphabetical order and think, hang on a minute, I think I'll play that one as I go. I mean, I don't need to tell what? you what a
3: joy that is, you guys. <laughs> is yeah, totally definitely. Cool. But I had my all my uh, music in storage for about four years, and and when I got it back, it was like just getting about you know two hundred Christmas presents in one yes, go. Exactly. Uh, even though mm, even mm. though I haven't got a record player, um, <laughs> but all the vinyls are anyway. And uh, I've got bags and bags of CDs, but it's like, oh, fuck them. They can stay where they are and don't give a shit. Seriously,
5: I'm the same. I've got... The boxes of CDs probably will just stay in the corner as kind of uh, um, insulation against the kind of nuclear war that Neil alluded to with his Threads comment earlier. (laughs) They'll be good
3: ballast, I think, you know. Protect and survive, Simon. Protect and survive. Duck and cover. CDs,
4: they're just... They they they're just unlovely objects, aren't they? Really, they're just. I find it very difficult to be warm or affectionate about them. So all of mine are just in boxes and kind of ignored. Yeah,
5: them. I mean, I sort of cling onto them with a the vague idea that they have some mm. lingering monetary value, which um, believe it or not, you. I mean, you think they don't, but um, in enough quantities they they do Um, but yeah they were unlovable things weren't they Yeah, those fucking those bits in the middle that held the disc in place Mm. that always shattered Yeah, and you open it up and you've got these tiny little fucking
3: (laughs) pissy bits of clear plastic falling everywhere And, and trying to get out the fucking insert on the bus ohm Oh, God. And oh and, just... oh, and we sound like proper old cunts here, but no, we're right. No, but we're, we are right. We're right. We're right. Al, it's the children that yes. are
5: wrong.
4: I mean, um, CDs. Well, the
5: children don't know what a fucking CD is either, <laughs> do, do they? Actually, it's, the people who the people who like CDs are people about thirty-eight years old, and they can fuck off as well. Yeah, you know?
4: <laughs> they're the most deceitful format CDs. Um, yeah. With a record, it starts skipping around. You can do something about it. With a CD, yes. you can't do yeah. fuck all. It's all hidden hidden behind laser
3: beams and stuff. I hate them. My CD collection is just a reminder of getting pissed up on Friday nights and going to Tower Records. Oh, because Tower was open late, wasn't That's it? That's it. deadly. That's it. No yeah, joy yeah. from them whatsoever. Ah, uh, the 90s. Ah,
5: <sighs>
3: good old <Yeah>. days. Yes. <laughs> How you been, Neil? So what you, What you been up to? Anything pop, poppy and exciting and fizzy? Well,
4: well, sort of, because I did a thing that I don't do very often anymore, and Ooh. I think Pricey alluded to this actually on Facebook the other day. I went to a gig. Um, I went to a pop concert by Sparks. Mm. God, how was it? <laughs> oh, they're amazing. They were brilliant. I-, I went to see them at Rock City, Al, and um,
3: in Nottingham, yeah, yeah not about ten minutes walk from me. Yeah, and did it...
4: you knock on the door and say hello? Well, did no, you fuck Al? You know, travelling to gigs, it used to be, oh, let's see if I can crash on somebody's floor. This time, it was just like. Park in Talbot Street, walk into Rock City, walk out of Rock City, back in the car and home in my gym jams, watching Match of the Day by about 11. But they, they...
3: <laughs> Well, you've got to beat the clock, got to beat the clock.
4: <laughs> but they, they were fantastic. They were really, really good. Um... You know,
3: I couldn't have seen you anyway because that was the same night as Simon's birthday party. Of course. Which I didn't get invited to. So the two of you were spent that night avoiding me.
5: Well, I, I <laughs> kind of uh, brushed over that, that big development since we last spoke. That, yeah, I did have a big birthday. Um, oh, and, and one of the presents I got, by the way, was a DVD of Protect and Survive that we just mentioned. Oh, Yeah, yeah, it was pu- lovely. public information films, um, you know, telling you to sort of drape a blanket over your kitchen table and cower and everything will be fine. Yes,
3: yeah, to, to some forty cents. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. And all this information may be newly um, important and useful to us. Who knows?
3: Yeah, who knows? Indeed. Cheerful times. Yeah! Hooray! <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> now then, chaps, this episode takes us all the way back to March the seventeenth, nineteen ninety-four. Yes, I did say nineteen ninety-four. By chart music standards, this is fucking last week, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The pop crazy youngsters have been telling us why haven't we done any 90s ones yet? And it's, I think it's down to me to explain, because uh, it's my fault. Because, to be honest with you, I couldn't give a toss about charts of the 90s. Um, and consequently, when I started hoovering up old episodes of Top of the Pops, when they appeared on the old Torrent sites, uh, I had a strict rule, which was nothing after 1985 but the third and probably the most important reason is that top of the pops episodes from the 90s are fucking thin on the ground uh-huh. um a lot of the episodes i've got um are, are are ones from the actual 90s when uk gold started repeating them i mean particularly the ones featuring the dj's that we do not mention anymore huh. and um and nobody seems to be asked about recording top of the pops as in the 90s like people used to do in the 80s so they they're, they're quite hard to track down but we've found one uh, no, uh, that's what we're going to talk about for this
5: episode. Maybe that in itself, maybe that fact in itself tells you um, a little bit about how um, that the, the show had fallen from its sort of pinnacle of uh, you know its place in in, uh, in British life by Absolutely. by the nineties. Mm. And you're right about it being incredibly recent. I mean, I think I still owe people phone calls from 1994. I think I've got <laughs> items in my fridge that are older than this episode. <laughs>
3: So, chaps, what were we doing in March of 1994? Right, well, um, I was working at Melody
5: Maker, which was the greatest music magazine in the world at that time and had been for several Ooh. years, I believe. Um, and uh, I was uh, I was living in a tiny bedsit in Holloway in North London and having pretty much an amazing time because the low rent uh, from living in a little bedsit meant that I had a relatively large amount of disposable income and I was moving up the ladder... At Melody Maker, I'd I'd been a freelance writer. I joined uh, in 1988 um, as a sort of correspondent from Paris, where I was studying at the time. By this by this point, I became a section editor. Um, I uh, I edited the kind of arts and media section. Then I became the reviews ed. And um, it was a time as if I I felt as if, in some way, I was involved in shaping the culture rather than just observing it from the from the sidelines. And it was probably the last Mm -hmm. time when being in the music press gave you that feeling when the music press did actually have that kind of power to make or break things and make things happen. And, um, appearance-wise mm-hmm. subculturally I'd, I'd been a goth for about seven years at this point um i started 1994 with long black dreadlocks and a bandana leather biker jacket heavy makeup like a cross between boy george and al jorgensen um <laughs> but um i i kind of midway through uh 94 maybe around the time of this episode even i lost faith in all that i was i just sort of got sick of it and um I shaved my hair off. I started wearing hip hop gear and skatewear. Neil will probably remember this. Um and uh and oh, I I was this when
3: you was known as Price Cube? Price Cube, <laughs> I was indeed
5: Price Cube. Um and I became obsessed with kind of East Coast versus West Coast rap, you know, the whole Wu-Tang thing versus G-Funk and all that. As well as mm. the Beastie Boys and their whole kind of Grand Royal aesthetic. And I was going to mm. hip hop clubs. So I was travelling back and forth to LA quite a lot for the maker interviewing Ooh. rappers and bringing back records no one had heard of. Um, so, yeah, it was quite an exciting time for me, in a time of transition, let's say. yeah.
4: I, I was, I mean, sartorially, I was similarly transitioning between... I, could, I tried to be a B-boy, I tried to dress in hip-hop clothes, but I could never afford them. And my mum, the the versions my mum bought from Asda were just crap and just made me look simple. (laughs) So I was kind of getting into slightly, uh, trying to look like my dad looked when he arrived off the boat in about 63, trying to look like an immigrant in a way, um, and trying to wear suits and 60s stuff. Um, I similarly was working at Melody Maker. Um, I was a freelance, so I'd started in like late 93, after I'd written him a letter. Mm. Um, the letter was basically, to their letters page, just moaning about things that I thought were wrong with the paper, because it was a paper that i would deeply loved since about 86. I've been an obsessive reader mm. of it, cover to cover, for a good six years, and I certainly had my favourite writers and everything else. By then, I think I'd stopped, um, I'd actually, st- a, to, to, it sounds pretentious, but I'd started finding out what it was I had to say about pot that was a bit unique. And a kind of unique mm. way of saying it. And under the kind of I mean, Pricey is my reviews editor was was massively important to this because Pricey, I mean, I'm not saying Pricey lets stuff through. <laughs> Other people wouldn't. <laughs> there are certain reviews I wrote that I can't I can't imagine anyone else not only letting them run, but also interjecting kind of in the pieces and stuff in a really entertaining way. But just kind of no, no, it's a, a good habit, habit. And, 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 and just letting me say what I wanted to say Um, I can't imagine mm. any of the reviews editor perhaps who would have sent I, I remember doing a Ned's Atomic Dustbin review at the time that, w- that was kind of it oh, was this just, is legendary. Uh, two lines and it was kind of like just pure invective and, and just structurally and kind of everything else it I mean Looking at record reviews now, it seems astonishing to me that this even r- ran. But Melody Maker felt like that. It felt like we were a kind of not a pack of freaks, but no, yeah, a pack of freaks. And <laughs> I've got to say, can I can sure. I just
5: interrupt there a second? I'm going to interject <laughs> uh, yet again and say the um, the review that Neil's talking about, the Ned's Atomic Dustbin one, uh, and I think there was another one. Was it Cooler yeah, Shaker? Yeah. But the, these two reviews, it is pure venom and hatred and invective, and it's basically um, about 560. Six hundred words of calling the readers a bunch of cunts, <laughs> um, which is an extraordinary thing for a music magazine to do. Mm. And I actually, I, I teach music journalism now at BIM in brighton and I um, make my students read those two reviews as an ex- as examples of the kind of extremes and crazy shit yeah. that was going on in the nineties because it was exemplary. No, no, God, no. I'm on, on a process. So. The
4: thing is about those reviews they were good record reviews I think because they were about the wider culture Um, the trouble is now too many music reviews seem to be about kind of the music in a way and they don't No, do you know what I mean? (laughs) They don't extend out to actually criticise the culture or where the things are coming from or question the motivation behind music which I think is all important when it comes to things like that. They're they're, they're more about filing and categorising than they are about kind of rhapsodising or ripping something apart. I would say it's the last sort of gasp of the golden age of Melody Maker, I would say. Um, at that stage, we were edited by Alan Jones and then Everett True. And by, the, by a few years from this episode, Melody Maker, I think Pricey had gone and a lot of people had gone and it was on on its way out. And, you know, I think what we'll see a lot of, and this applies to Top of the Pops and the music press and everything else we'll be talking about in the 90s, is, is this feeling that suddenly people wanted to fix things, to maximise the audience and care about the audience more than make it reader-responsive. Mm. And what they ended up doing was fucking destroying so much.
5: Oh, yeah, they focus yeah, groups. it to basically death, basically. Yeah, basically destroying a
4: critical culture that I think is essential to the health of any culture. And so it's no accident that with the death of these kind of voices in, in, in the press... I'm not saying the music went down the tubes, but a good critical culture benefits everybody, not just critics, but it benefits musicians and everyone else as well. And this was was on its way out by this stage. The kind of writing was on the wall a little bit.
3: And, uh, of course, Taylor and David, our other chart music chums, they were there at the same time as well, weren't they? Yeah, well, David was
5: was one of the kind of precursors. He was, I don't know about Neil, but certainly for me... um, David Stubbs, along with his sidekick, Simon Reynolds, and uh, and Chris Roberts, another one of their contemporaries, those three were the three guys that I wanted to be like. They're the reason I wanted to join Meldy Maker in the first place. And they kind of came through in about 86, 87. Right. that's it was exactly at that time and because of those guys that Maker seized the initiative from NME in terms of really sharp, intelligent groundbreaking writing MeldyMaker had mm. been kind of floundering around a little bit before that and NME kind of held sway but in the late 80s NME lost its way, Maker very much found its way and um, yeah that that's certainly why By late 88, I just couldn't wait to get something printed in the maker. And um, to my amazement, it happened. Yeah, I
4: mean, I'm still amazed by it. Taylor was actually the person who... Put, plucked my letter out of the sort of backlash letters pile and said that it should and yeah it? and said that it should be letter of the week. I think he suggested it to somebody and um, they made it letter of the week. And then wasn't it Jim? It might have been Jim. Wasn't yeah, and Jim, and Jim passed uh, it on to Kathy G- Unsworth. Kathy Unsworth made it letter of the week. And then at the bottom of it, they said, "Do you think you can do any better, Mister Claven?" Because I'd actually signed it Clifford C Claven after my favourite character <laughs> in Cheers. And being a cocky, <laughs> arrogant little git as I was back then, I did phone up Melody Maker and said, "Actually, I do think I can do better." And they asked me to yeah. do a couple of sample articles, I did one that was like a 10,000 word review of fucking Miles Davis or something, it was nuts, you know, because all I was obsessed with was literature Mm -hmm. and music, but that was how I was hired, and looking back, it is staggering that I was hired that way, that would just not happen now at all people were hired not necessarily by being at the right party at the right time but really by just having something to say you know and being being able to string mm. a sentence together and you know people were hired in pubs and being
3: and, a leery bastard
4: well yeah that helped as well but um, you know <laughs> I, I just don't think that would occur anymore you'd have to prove how many clicks you've got and how many Twitter followers you've got and all the rest of it um, to, 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 yeah. to, to, be, yeah. to be taken on and that's a real shame I think
3: so March 1994. What was going on in the uh, in the offices? What was a What, what were you talking about? Because it, I mean, we're we're a week or so away from Kurt Cobain um, overdosing in Italy, I believe. Yeah. Well, the whole grunge thing
5: uh, was still quite a big deal. Um, Everett True, who Neil just mentioned, was um, obsessed with that stuff, and he was good friends with Kurt and Courtney Love and various of the other artists. So um, that was quite. I mean, it wasn't something I was into personally, but it sold us a lot of a lot of copies. The whole grunge thing. It was a, if we had Pearl Jam or or Nirvana on the front, particularly, uh, we would shift a lot of issues that week. So um, yeah, basically, all mm. Kurt had to do was trip over a flight of stairs or something, mm. and you know, he would be in the news pages. Do you know what? If, if you really want to know what's in the Melody Maker this week, I've got three cardboard boxes full of um, every, every Melody Maker in the 90s in chronological order. Get them. So it, it wouldn't take me too long. Get them out. You talk to Neil for a bit, um, and I'm going to take my earphones off. I'm going to find the fucking uh, exact Melody Maker from this week. All right, give me a second. Carry on. You go ahead, man. Right. Okay. Here it goes. So you, you carry on amongst yourselves. I was going
4: to say, in terms of what was going on in the office... The office was a scary place to me. I was, I was still yeah. living in Coventry, and um, so I rarely went down. People like Pricey were still stars to me, so I used to goggle them and kind of uh, pick up the singles for reviews and stuff. And that was about it. Fucking 1992. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, Neil, t- talk us through an average day. An average day for an average day for me. Too much night to... <laughs> At Melody Maker, I don't know, but as a freelancer, I can talk you through that. Um, an average day as a freelancer was. This is pre-email, don't forget. This is yeah. 1994, and it's pre-internet as well. So it's all about the Daily Post, and it was all about fax machines, not email. Right. I used the... Yeah. Mailbox. I'm not entirely sure I even used the word processor.
5: I uh, think it was... Now, I have in my hands uh, Meldy Maker, 12th of March, uh, 1994. So oh. it'd be the one that was in the shops at that time. Right. Um, and amazing, you should mention this, on the front cover, Kirk Cobain Drugs Drama. Oh! Um, we're giving away um a free Bjork and Evan Dando poster. Ooh. Um, there's a big splash across the top, Aphex Twin Ambience First Superstar. Um, and uh along the bottom in small letters, Morrissey, Eddie Izzard, I think that was me who wrote that, Wonderstuff, Stuff, Soundgarden, Echo Belly, Mannix, Two Unlimited, and Courtney Love. And um Wow. Oh yeah, and massive uh double page news story uh, as you turn uh, about uh, turn the, the cover about uh, Kurt Cobain uh, being rushed to hospital in coma. And I'm going to go through and see right. if um, there's anything by Neil. That would be a laugh. Hang on a second. Yes, <laughs> ah, yes. Or me, oh, for that matter. The
3: first, co- the first podcast to bring you a man reading an old copy of Melody Maker. Oh, you lucky, lucky, pop-crazy youngsters.
5: Fuck Top of the Pops. This is the future. Oh, so there's... <laughs> There's Catelyn Moran interviewing Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff.
4: Uh, Mm. I was in very sporadically at that stage, I think. I was Uh, still just a freelancer. But I mean I was still it was still a case of going into The Great Smiths every Wednesday and still floating on air, seeing the name in print and not quite believing
3: it. Uh, uh, Go to the record reviews, Simon. Just get into that. What single of the week. Here's the
5: preview section, which is um, uh, it's the arts media bit edited by me, and I am indeed interviewing Eddie Um Yeah, I'll find out single of the week for you now. Just get into that. David Stubbs interviewing the Aphex Twin over a double page. Um, ah, Ooh. single of the week uh, reviewed by Courtney Love and Everett True. Fucking it um, And oh god, it's a load. It's a load of fucking horrible Everett True music. Um, <laughs> they've, they've actually done. They've they've done. Um, they've done five singles of the week and they are Lou Barlow of Sebado Palace, which is what's his name in it? You know, Will yeah, Oldham, Will is Oldham. that right?
1: Yeah.
5: Uh, Madder Rose, Evaporators, I've never fucking heard of and Compulsion who were like a new wave of new wave band. Right. Or as, uh, Andrew Collins said it, no one <laughs> Um, there's, uh, um, Catlin Moran reviewing the new Morrissey album, which was Vauxhall and I, right. Uh, Blah blah blah. Any cool carny? Any price going on here? I think we had a quite. Oh, here I am. I'm. I'm interview. Oh, this is great. I'm really pleased about this. One of my favourite albums of all time. Um, I'm reviewing um, Nine Inch Nails' The Downward Spiral. Right. Uh, that's that's the lead. That's the lead review there. I'm quite right. excited to see that. Uh Kathy Unsworth worth interviewing too. Oh at home with two unlimited. <laughs> uh, great. We, we were nothing if not um a broad church uh, melody maker. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, yes yeah, sadly no cockney action. Oh well.
3: Neil. But
5: I think I think this is a this is a nice new um kind of a feature for the podcast that any, <laughs> <laughs> anything God anything, if,
3: if I could because so <laughs> you know I always feel guilty when I'm talking to a load of Melody Maker journalists and I go oh in the, on the cover of the Enemy this week and you know, that's offensive isn't it you must fucking hate man yeah. but the thing mm. is is that Wikipedia has got uh, uh, every Enemy cover um, f- section yeah. and they have not for Melody Maker sort that out Simon
5: well I am now the living archives just ask me
4: Excellent. I'm sure cult- culturally, the Melody Maker is kind of banded together with the enemy. But to me, I could never even consider writing for the enemy. It was it was a spiritual thing almost that it had to be yeah. Melody Maker because you know, melody, just Melody Maker had that voice throughout it that I trusted and that I loved, and the enemy didn't. The enemy just seemed like a sort of um, the enemy seemed like a music magazine. Melody Maker was just about so much more than that, and, and Melody Maker just made you laugh just more,
3: like TV well.
5: Times. You, you're saying,
4: yeah, exactly. exactly.
5: I, I think um, the the pitch I give it would be at this point, Enemy was very. I mean, they they got rid of any kind of pretences to intellectualism, and it was all very kind of happy go lucky. Um, it was all kind of, um, I don't know. I guess the wedding present, the wonder stuff, Vic and Bob, all that kind of business. And it's all, don't take anything too seriously. It's all a bit of a laugh. Whereas we, I think we were funny. We were fucking viciously funny. But that was the key. We were vicious with it. And also, there was definitely an intellectual edge to to what we did. There was also a very childish, kind of scatological, sweary edge to what we did. There's no Mm -hmm. getting around that. Mm. But, you know, I I think ours was a paper of extremes, and they were quite middle of the road. Mm. The thing is, because the NME was the kind of iconic, and I hate that word, but it was, uh, even down its logo being, they at least had a better logo than us. There's no yeah. getting around it. Um, <laughs> and everyone, everyone associated Enemy with Punk, and they associated with Julie Burchill and Paul Morley, Danny Baker, all that stuff. It meant that if you had a job on the Enemy, even by this point, um, you had a job for life in the media. Yeah. So all these guys, mm. uh, you know, David Quantick, Steve Lamack, um, Andrew Collins, Stuart McConey, they've all gone on to very successful jobs uh, in the media. Hardly any of us. Like, I mean, Cat Moran obviously being the exception, but the rest of us, you know, we were not fast tracked. There was no fucking track, slow or fast. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that that was that's the one fatal kind of tactical error I made by picking Melody Maker. But um, I, I still think you know we had righteousness on our side
3: at this time. Absolutely. Simon, was it round about this time that you, uh, the the Melody Maker and Enemy, were practically next door to each other?
5: Oh yeah, it had been for some time. Um, fucking hell! Certainly by the time. But by the time I joined, um so late eighty eight, eighty nine, uh, we were on the twenty sixth floor of Kings Reach Tower, massive tower block on the south bank, and enemy uh, NME was on the twenty fifth floor, so literally upstairs, downstairs, we'd run into them in the lift, in the canteen, all that in a pub, and you know, there was very childish kind of uh segregation shooting each other evils across (laughs) across the bar and that kind of thing and and we wouldn't drink with them and all that kind of thing and uh it was quite childish it really was Uh, because at the end of the day they were in the same boat as us they were freelance journalists pretty much getting screwed over by a major corporation we had so much in common but we thought they were the absolute enemy well enemy to you know coin the phrase it's funny that isn't it yeah we hate that. I, I still do. I still do hate the enemy. You know what? I still fucking hate the enemy. Yeah. I'm like that guy who was the last Japanese soldier that st- <laughs> still thought that um, World War Two was going on in 1975, whatever it was. Um, I, I I still have this ridiculous, unjustifiable loathing of of the enemy at that time, and even now, I I'm very territorial and very kind of um, partisan about about the maker long after the makers ceased to exist Mm. I think I'm one one of the few feels that way although I did I I DJ'd uh, David Quantic's wedding Um, he's a mate of mine and uh uh, I was privy to, to the speech and doing his own wedding speech he started slagging off Melody Maker and I, I liked him for that I thought fa- I thought fair went, you know good for you that you you still carry that hatred with you because it's mutual
3: right is there anything else you want to say and get over
5: what do you want to know there's ask us load.
4: ask us anything you want to ask
3: us we'll oh tell you, you know? god no you put me on the spot there
4: there's a question you've asked here actually that you sent out was working in the music press and the night is all it's cracked up to be even in my most dismal moments at Melody Maker um I would have still said it was the best fucking job in the world. Yeah. I mean, writing about music, what's not to like. And yeah, I mean, free records, free gigs, that's all good. Yeah. But it was always a fucking total dream job. And I was I was utterly devastated when the Melody Maker finished. Which 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 and the fact that the brand leader was allowed to carry on is actually still with us, which astonishes me. Yeah, but it's um, fucking yeah, shit it's still, now, isn't still, it? it? It is fucking shit, but it sticks in my craw still um, a little bit. And the fact that when that happened in 2000, um, you know, those who were at the Melody Maker, uh, sorry, at the enemy, and who'd been bought upstairs to save the Melody Maker, they were all okay. They just went back downstairs. We were all fucked. And I remember, mm. I'll never, ever forget, the very last day I went to King's Reach Tower, this was after the the, 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 the they'd shut the whole thing down, actually. Um, I went in the office um, just to pick up my mail and uh, Zane, who worked at Melody Maker at the time, was there, and he had tears in his eyes, you know. And he passed me the last ever issue of Melody Maker, which I think fucking had a limp biscuit on the cover. Wasn't it, it did, yeah. And yeah, and I, and I remember strolling to Waterloo Station, uh,
5: strolling, strolling, stroll. <laughs> Sorry, going <on> <laughs>
4: to, <laughs> to Waterloo to get the train back to Cov, and and reading this last issue of Melody Maker, you know, thinking, oh, this is a little bit of history. I should keep it. And of course, by the time I got to Waterloo, I dumped it in the fucking bin. Yeah. It was a shadow. It was. Was an absolute shadow of what it had been it was a sort of stain on the history if you like so in a sense you know we'll probably end up talking about successive editors of Melody Maker and what went wrong uh, with the music press um, but yeah I mean I, I, I won't mourn the end of Melody Maker in a sense that the paper by the time it had closed was not the paper it had been. Mm. Um, I mean I'm, I'm
5: lucky because I missed out on all this I'd already I'd already quit in 97 uh, because I had a book contract to write a book mm. about the Mannix and um, and uh, I, I could see the way things are going, a new editor would come in I didn't like the way he was taking the paper and I just thought, oh fuck this, I've got my life raft to get out, I'm getting out but certainly, for the, I was there for um, nine years altogether and it was just a sort of Dream is just wish-fulfillment. I, I mm. started out as a music journalist when I was still at school, uh, in what I probably mentioned this before, mm. but in, in South Wales in, in 84, writing for the and District News, the local paper, and that was just um, by chance. Similar to Neil, in a way, I wrote them a letter complaining there was nothing in it for young people, and it was all... Um, Lady Skills results in obituaries, and they indeed uh, wrote wrote back to me and said, "Can you do any better?" and offered me my own singles column, which which they called Simon Says, you know, embarrassing <laughs> name, but but yeah, I mean, it, it it gave me a kind of taste of that. That power to stir up controversy and to piss people off, and I did that for two years. Even before I got to London, went mm. to London, got involved in in student journalism um, at the uh, um, University of London Union, London student, and through that I basically stalked Simon Reynolds of Melody Maker. Mm. Um, we we had this this issue where we were uh, interviewing people behind the scenes in the music biz, like a kind of uh, there'd be a plugger and a live agent and blah 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 manager. And I thought, right, fuck it, I'm going to interview a journalist. And I, and Simon Reynolds was my absolute hero by this point. So I interviewed him. And obviously, he, he, you know, must have took a shine to me, thought I had some promise or potential. And he introduced me to some of the guys at The Maker. And it turned out I was going to go and live in Paris for a year as part of my French course. And they said, well, why don't you send in a few reviews? And I, I, I did. They ignored the first couple. Then they printed the third one, which was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Elise mm. uh, Montmartre. And, um, uh, I just seen it in print. Open. It. I can remember where I was. Yeah. I was on. A, I was on a bus uh, going through Archway in North London with my then girlfriend, and just opening the paper. Oh my fucking god! Look, it's me. It's me. It's me. And it wasn't <laughs> yeah. just my name. It was a. It was a lead review with a photo and a black box oh, wow. around it and all of that, and that just blew my mind. So, uh, even though I'd I'd gone to London supposedly to do a degree in French and philosophy, um, my my head was turned and it was. There was only one thing I really wanted to do, and my mind went off my studies big time not that i was ever the most diligent of students i i kind of carried on seamlessly through and and you know the maker was my my life until i sadly had to quit because well i think the maker quit me that's what i'm going to say I mean, yeah. the maker it quit all of us didn't it but it, did, it, yeah. it was it was just the most brilliant job in the you, you, it was quite all quite casual. You you turn up at about eleven a.m. and nobody batted an eyelid, and then the the pub would be open already. A lot of people <laughs> would sort of decamp down there for the rest of the day, and it's not just that kind of Fleet Street lunchtime booze thing of red nosed journalists drinking all day. Yeah. But it was genuinely creative in that. You would fire ideas off each other. When Neil came down from Coventry, it was always quite exciting because, you know, uh, he, <laughs> it, no, it was just, he's such a bright wow. mind. And there was me and him and, and Taylor and Catelyn and Pete Perfides and Dave Bennon and, and that whole generation of writers. And, um, just to, sometimes we just sit in the review room, uh, at the Maker, where I think was the room you allowed to have a cigarette yeah. and, um, and, and just stick something on the CD player and we just be sort of, chatting shit back and forth but you would bounce ideas off each other and it would spur you on to greater creative heights whereas nowadays i i, I think that's really hard to do i guess you mm. could say facebook f- fills that role a little bit but i, I don't know if it really does um, yeah. i think once jour- once journalists got kind of farmed out to the end of a email connection at the end of a phone line and they no longer meet each other in the flesh face to face something was lost
4: absolutely and and you know, I I can I, I completely identify with Simon reading his first piece on the bus, and it just blowing his mind. I mean, I've said in print before that your whole life as a writer can be seen as a kind of downward spiral from that moment. Yeah, you, to you're chasing extent. the, the first
3: high, aren't you?
4: It is so addictive. It is so addictive, and 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 I never got bored of it. I, I went from being a freelancer in a, it, to actually being uh, you know on staff at Melody Maker because of. Everett, in a monumental act of perversity made me gossip editor for three years <laughs> Which is, you know i was a kid from coventry i didn't go to fucking parties and yet i'm meant to be in london you know slamming my hand on the table saying yes i know where rialto were last night or something <laughs> um, <laughs> you know I, I did that for a few years and the office early on was exactly as simon describes it a really a really warm and friendly and encouraging place uh, what happened was what i've seen fatal in everywhere i've worked is that when that bit of trust breaks down between bosses and workers. And in the case of Melody Maker, between editors and writers, it all fucks up. And mm. before you knew it, by about 97, 98, by which time Pricey had gone and a lot of people had gone, that office was like a, a load of cubicled kind of worker drones tap, tap, yeah. tapping away. And we'd get these memos, market research led, which is always fatal. I remember uh, the, the, the final editor of Melody Maker pulling me into his office and saying, we're going to change things because we've done a bit of market research and we found out all of our readers were born in 1982 or most of them were 16 years old and this was in 1998 he said from now on any band that you're mentioning in your copy before 1982 has to be explained
1: and for me
4: that showed such a fundamental misunderstanding of what was so great about the music press the music Mm. press you followed things on your own reconnaissance, you know? You followed references yeah. on your own reconnaissance, and you built up this knowledge. It was it was my school, the music press, to a large extent. Not just in music, but in film, politics, literature, everything. Um, in one fell swoop, they kind of killed that in about 97, 98. And, you know, yeah, by the end, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. But whilst it was good, it was probably the happiest period of my entire life. And I think most people who worked at Melody Maker will probably say the same thing.
3: Mm. Right, a few quick questions then. Are music journalists frustrated musicians?
4: No. No, a lot of (laughs)
3: us are musicians. We're not frustrated in the slightest. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Number two, um, do you regret not being a music journalist in the 80s or the 70s? Do you know what? There's there's this kind of golden
5: age-ism and... uh, Mm. Uh, at whatever point you turn up in the music press, people will always Mm. tell you, oh, it was better before you got here. And in some ways, they were absolutely right. Um, We would hear these stories about Melody Maker in the 70s and 80s having an apartment in New York where you could just go and stay for as long as you wanted, just rent free, just go and stay in New York and just live a bit of that life. Which, it's just mind-blowing. And Mm. we all know the stories about people being flown to the States and back just to do one live review on some kind of junket with everybody in first class drinking champagne um we all know the stories of ripping open um album mailers and there'd be just cocaine falling out and all that kind of stuff we missed all that um at least i never got sent any of that stuff um but nevertheless i i still think we were there when some of that was was left there was money a lot of money sloshing around the music biz particularly during Britpop. pop A lot of money flowing around. If Mm. you've read the book, um, Kill Your Friends, or seen the film, um, that is pretty accurate to how things were. There seemed to be a party almost every night uh, being paid for by a record company. You could um, pretty much live a whole week without paying for a drink or even paying for food if you were clever. Um, And that's on top of your CDs and your gig tickets. Mm. So... um, from it was it was a, a a genuinely great lifestyle it it was kind of proximity to glamour and showbiz and celebrity without having the downside obviously without having the upside of monumental riches but it it really was quite an enviable job at the time I think
4: and, and crucially I don't think we ever felt or I certainly never felt and I'm sure Pricey didn't either we didn't feel like we were these kind of sad spots on the sidelines watching we f- we did feel like we were part of the culture and that and mm. our, our reviews are being read not that necessarily bands would act on them or anything but but that we were a part of it that we weren't just at the kind of teat end getting fed mm. that we were a, we were a part of the culture and and yeah, If you're low maintenance and if you've got a nice smile, you could go out and get out your tree with lots of people and have lots of parties and um, have a lot of fun. The the good thing about the night is for me is I I have memories, but they're all kind of a bit foggy and a bit foggy and a bit fucked up (laughs) because of the substances that were knocking around, alcoholic or otherwise, through that period. I, I was having a ball. I was having a really good time in that period.
3: What review or what thing out of all the stuff you wrote in that time would you love to have expunged from the from the memory? Ooh,
4: god! I gave some terrible shit. Really good reviews, um, such as I. Well, I gave Limp Biscuits' album ten out
3: of ten. Oh, get <laughs> off my fucking podcast now, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Neil!
4: I oh, know, man. I don't know what was going on that week. Um It was. I don't know what was going on. But yeah, I gave Significant Other by Limp Biscuit, to my eternal shame, 10 out of 10. But this is what I say to people whenever they say, oh, you're a music critic. You're supposed to have good taste. I say, well, hold on a minute. You know, um, I-, I did say that. I must have felt it at the time. Can't fucking believe I did that now. So if that could be removed from the record, I've now put it back on the record. Yeah, you, well, you have.
3: You if really if have. Be
4: remo- <laughs> if that could be removed from the record, that'd be great.
3: Simon? There's,
5: there's one thing... There's there's one review I wrote that I still flinch about to the extent that I can't even bring it up on here. But I will tell you about a funny thing that happened. Um, I, do you remember the band Sultans of Ping FC who had a yes. minor indie hit with Where's Me Jumper? Yes. Um, they they were dreadful. Um, and they they brought out an album and uh, there was a thing in the office. I guess the ringleaders of it were the Stud Brothers of writing incredibly vicious, brutal reviews um, about you know what should be done to these crappy little indie bands, you know, acts of violence (laughs) that should be perpetrated upon them and as a joke um, I wrote one of these reviews um, in that style about Sultans of Ping FC and uh, handed it in to Andrew Muller who was the reviews editor at the time and uh, it involved things like tearing them limb from limb and doing unspeakable acts to the bleeding sockets let's say (laughs) Um, and he fucking printed it. <laughs> he fucking it was a joke. It was a joke. I I expected him to come back to me and said, Ha nice one pricey, where's your real review? But he didn't. He fucking ran it. And oh. then I had um the mothers of readers of the paper ringing in to complain, and I had to sort of field these phone calls from distressed parents of Melody Maker readers saying, well, I've never read such filth in a music magazine. Oh, and, man. And, and, and me, and, and it didn't really make it any better when I said, oh, look, it was just a joke. It wasn't meant <laughs> to be printed. So, yeah, I, I think that was, a, that was an episode that I would rather had not happened.
4: I was always surprised at kind of legal reaction, because I remember writing a Britney Spears review where I called the record company, um, I think it was Child Molesting Mafia Nazis or something like that. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, a throwaway kind of line. But before yeah. you know it, down, the faxes, you know, we we will take you to court. I got that again from Patsy Kensit's lawyers when I was the gossip editor for an unfortunate caption that I put on a photo of her arriving with her children at an airport. She was hiding her child's face with a hat. And I captioned the photo. Innocently enough, I thought... Um, Patsy Kensett with horribly disfigured bowler-hat-headed child arrives at Heathrow <laughs> or something like that. And within the hour, I think, of that hitting the stands, Yeah, um, lawyers were involved. Um, so I should never have been gossip editor, man. Was a <laughs>
3: <thing>. <laughs> and who's the biggest bell-end you came across round right, right about this time? Oh, Who was known in the office <laughs> for being a right twat? Oh, man. Writers or musicians? Musicians. Uh... uh now! Oh God. <laughs> I can wait.
5: I, t- I mean, you know, the, the I don't I don't know if it's fair to call him a bell in, but the worst interviewees I had were uh um what's his name? Jay Maskis from Dinosaur Junior, mm-hmm. who I went all the way to New York and barely got three words out of him. Um Oh God, who else is really hard work I'm trying to think? Do you I know normally fun- people people were usually um, pretty personable when when you interviewed them because at least for 45 minutes they can pretend to be mm. functional human beings and give you the time of day because they know that ultimately um, you're in charge of how they're going to look mm. so you know they're, they're, I kind of I don't know I had I had people physically confront me but I probably deserved it go on I so just so oh Oh, pop will eat itself. They didn't do it themselves, but they sent somebody over, one of their crew, to pour a pint over my head. Um, I was, I oh, senseless things. um, Ned's Atomic Dust, all that lot. all those those cunts uh, (laughs) would. Yeah yeah and um fuck them. There was a weird incident where there's a weird incident where where um that lot were held back from attacking me by Carter the unstoppable sex machine <laughs> who, who, I, who I also thought was shit but but Carter Carter could take it Carter were a bit mm. older and they could take the criticism and they were like oh come on just fucking it. it's not worth it and they were they basically saved my skin and I you know a bit of sneaking respect for Carter USM for that because they were they were oh, bigger th- than that they
3: had to go at Philip Schofield but they protected you oh they did that's
5: a good point yeah yeah
4: I yeah. interviewed quite a few arseholes uh, Rude the Damager do you remember him He was yeah. A, yes. yeah the rapper he was a racist dick to me and as soon as he figured out that I wasn't a black male, what he started being a complete racist <laughs> cunt and I'll never forget that interview it's a re- very story <laughs> oh, uh... but very disappointing because I really liked his stuff um the only other, yeah. the only one I kind of came into conflict played with, himself. With, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the only one I sort of came into conflict with was, was Ian Brown out of Stone Roses. who left death threats on my phone, but um, I believe that. Was, oh yes, I believe that was quite a common thing with him um, threatening people. Really? Um, yeah. So. Really? What did you? What? 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 Well, no, I, I, well I, I went to see him when he went solo. Um, there was a junket mm. as Simon was talking about a junket unfortunately not to America it was the fucking bus to bloody Cambridge or something no it was Oxford actually went to see a solo show which right. was inevitably awful because it was Ian Brown and yeah. um, the only good thing about it was that Sanjay from EastEnders was in the crowd which was great huh. but, um,
3: but was he now?
4: I, I reviewed the show slagged it off went away I think I went to America that week and I was, think I was interviewing Public Enemy or something like that come back and this was the weekend before Glastonbury um, come back to carve play my answer machine because this was the year of answering machines and fax machines um, yeah. but yeah played my answering machine and there's Ian um, who had been given my number presumably by his PR officer massively unprofessional I think Um with his mm. usual, oh, Mister Malady Maker, I'm going to break your fucking legs and all this sort of stuff," and uh, like, I'm just going to make me and kill me. Um,
3: which I'm going to, I'm going to leave you walking like me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And then I got to Glastonbury the next week, not really thinking much about it. And the an aforementioned press officer legged it up to me. Uh, looking really worried saying Ian's on site and he knows you're on site and he's gonna batter you and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Which didn't concern me. Until That's I realised like he is a black belt school in...
3: playground, isn't it? It
4: is, it is, but he is a black belt in karate, so I just kinda of went and hid a week. Ah, uh, yeah, but you
5: don't know karate, but you know Kareza. <laughs> uh, uh, Neil just reminded me of something that happened at Glastonbury, where I was at the bar in the VIP bit, and somebody pushed me in the back in a really pathetic, girly way, and I turned around, mm. and it was Evan Dando out of the Lemonheads, pretending he hadn't done it. Right. And yeah he's, he's doing, yeah, he's doing that thing of like, oh, it wasn't me. And, um, and all it was was that I slagged off his girlfriend,
4: Juliana Hatfield, um, her band, and um, <laughs> you know, go yeah. on. No, you know what that reminds me of. Ju- Juliana Hatfield always used to, I think, make, pri- pro- uh, make sort of points in interviews that she was a virgin or something. And so consequently, she was called <laughs> Juliana Hatfield Never Had A Twatfield,
1: which I thought was great.
5: It was, it was a different time.
3: <laughs> I was on the dole. In the news this week then, the London Gender Clinic is under fire for announcing a designer baby scheme where you can choose your baby's sex. There's been a failed IRA bomb attack on Sevenoaks Railway Station. Michael Jackson's mum has been forced to appear in court in his molestation trial Sarah Ferguson has announced that she's still married to Prince Andrew and isn't slapping it about with anyone else that week (laughs) Tonya Harding admits to trying to cover up her role in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan I love that story yeah Mm. me too it's great isn't it carry on sorry not not if you're Nancy Kerrigan obviously but no, everyone else and and the best bit of the story is neither of them won which was fucking hilarious wasn't it Liverpool F.C. have announced that the Kop is to be demolished and sold off in pieces in the summer, but the big news this week is that Rod, Jane, Fred,er and Jeffre have been axed by Rainbow. Fuck's sake! End of an era, chaps.
4: Absolutely, there I It's like
5: when Matthew Bannister came into <laughs> Radio One and got rid of all the old farts, which is probably yeah. something we'll talk about in this
3: episode. For yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we will. So, on the cover of the enemy this week is Paul Weller. On the cover of Smash it's this week is EYC. Anybody remember them? Um, no. They were. No. Uh, they were. American... Oh, were they Michael Jackson's cousins? I don't know. They're, well, they're one of them was eyebrows. white, so
5: probably. They have mad eyebrows, and I think they claim to be Michael Jackson's cousins or something like that.
3: Really? Yeah. EYC stuff, express yourself clearly, uh, and they're currently down to number 16 in the charts with The Way You Work It, and mm. I'd never heard of them until I saw this, uh, until I was researching <laughs> this episode, so yeah. Uh, the number one LP at the moment in the UK is Our Tan, Greatest It's by Deacon Blue. Over in the US, the number one single is The Sign by Ace of Bass. And the number one LP in America is Music Box by Mariah Carey. What else was on tele tonight? Well, BBC One has already screened Newsrand, Blue Peter, Neighbours and the National and Local News. No Tomorrow's World because uh, it's 1994 and there is no tomorrow. To uh, to to worry about. No, <laughs> top of the pops has been moved by this time to seven o'clock. The first thing, the first change it's made at this uh, period, which was wrong. Was this where it was up against Coronation Street? No, that was later.
4: That it got moved to. That, that was later. later. Was it? it got okay. moved to Friday night, didn't it? And that was a fucking yes. stupid move. And it, and they lost loads yeah. of viewers because yeah. of that. It's yeah. another fucking right. market research-led load of bullshit.
3: Yes. BBC Two has broadcast okay to talk feelings uh, about sexual jealousy, the Cheltenham Festival, a Welsh drama series called People of the Valley, the Sixth Form Quiz Show... Sorry, Simon? Pobolokum. Oh, is that what it's called? Well, yeah, I mean,
5: unless uh, there was an English language version... It was building BBC Two as People of the Valley. Maybe maybe it was subtitled. Brilliant. Okay, carry on. It
3: was, yeah, it was, yeah.
5: Uh, Cumb, right? In Wales, it's like a jury service <laughs> that like pretty much everybody has to be on Poblocum so I'm amazed yeah, I've not yeah. been on it myself yet. Seriously, <laughs> if you if you throw a stone in Cardiff you'll hit somebody's been on Populacum. Anyway, carry on.
3: The Sixth Form Quiz Show All In The Mind and is currently screening the 1952 Anthony Quinn film East of Sumatra. ITV is put on Shortland Street, A Country Practice, Tots TV, Animaniacs, Funhouse, Garden In Time, Home And Away and is currently showing Dale. And Channel 4 is screened Sesame Street, Countdown, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The Wonder Years and is currently showing Channel 4 News. Let's get stuck in. Right and pop crazy youngsters it's time to go back back no just back back not back 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 to march of 1994 <laughs> don't forget we may cope down your favorite band and artist and might already have done so before we've even started but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have <laughs> It's Thursday, March 17th, 1994, and Top of the Pops is still recovering from its Year Zero revamp that it underwent in 1991, when the Radio 1 DJs who presented the show were replaced by younger and relatively unknown and relatively shit presenters. They added interviews and out-of-studio performances, and they started to demand that the acts performed live. A lot of that had been junked over the side by this time and this episode is the first of the new era to feature celebrity presenters. This week, it's Mark Owen and Robbie Williams of Take That who scored three number ones on The bounce the year before and are about to release their first single of 1994, Everything Changes. Other guest presenters this year would include Meatloaf, Jack D, Alice Cooper, Julian Clare, Kylie Minogue and Gary Glitter. Oh dear. So, chaps, is this proof that Top of the Pop still has a lot of clout, or is it a symptom of Radio 1's current lineup being a bit shit? At the moment, they've got um, Steve Wright in the morning, then it's Simon Mayo, Lynn Parsons, then it's Mark Goodyear, then it's Nicky Campbell, Steve Lamac, Joe Wyler, Mark Radcliffe. Surely one of them could have done a job on top of the post.
5: Well, the thing is, you, you mentioned that uh, so-called Year Zero revamp 91, which was Stanley Apple, wasn't mm. it, the producer at that time. Um, and that was mm-hmm. analogous to what was happening at Radio 1 at that time. So, as you mentioned, it was, it was the same time... Yeah. Matthew Bannister was eradicating all the old farts at Radio 1. Uh, he'd replaced Johnny Beerling, who'd been in charge of Radio 1 like, forever since it launched in 1967. And um, I, I actually interviewed yeah. him. I, I mentioned earlier the um, the arts and media section preview that I, I ran at The Maker. I interviewed mm. Bannister around this time because it's very controversial, made a lot of headlines that he kicked. Mm. Was, yeah, it, yeah, he yeah. kicked out DLT, he kicked out Simon Bates, oh. that whole generation, Gary Davis adrian just bruno brooks steve wright all of them either jumped or were pushed um in fact i tell you what there's there's a great blood on the carpet documentary on the iplayer about this at the moment you can find Mm -hmm. um featuring trevor dan and his perfectly conical head um (laughs) and uh, even at the time i thought bannister was right to do what what he did but inevitably they shed i don't know nearly half listenership, mm. Danny Baker was, was meant to be the, the bright new hope and I think he mm. lost about 7 million listeners from what DLT had had uh, but it was necessary Fuck. to do that, to turn it around and it did turn around um, but so I, I suppose with all this turmoil going on, it meant that uh, for Top of the Pops, which had previously drawn upon uh, Radio 1 presenters th- they're just they weren't there weren't the people there with that kind of experience yet Mm. Um, so the, uh, I guess the, it was Rick Blacksell, wasn't it? At this point, mm. with ninety four, Rick Blacksell mm. just died. A bit of a slide backwards um, from the year zero thing, because in a way, you know, th- his innovation being bringing in these celebrity presenters—the ones you mentioned, Angus Deaton, Frankie Dittori was one mm. Julia Carling, yes. Julia Carling for fuck's sake! What, yes, you, men- you mentioned oh, no. Meatloaf, and I-, I read about this. There's, there's a book uh, about Top the Pops by. Ian Gittins, another former Melody Maker writer.
3: That's the one with uh, every every celebrity paedophile ever, apart from Len Fairclough on the cover.
5: <laughs> yeah, bottom left corner, you've got DLT and Savile, and bottom right corner, you've got Rolf yes. Harris. Unbelievable. But um, yeah. in that book, he mentions this, is brilliant, um, when it was Meatloaf's go being the uh, celebrity presenter, the script said... Intro Terrorvision and uh, Meatloaf didn't understand that Terrorvision was <laughs> a band name, so he just went Rah! because <laughs> because because he thought he thought he was meant to terrify the viewers. I absolutely love that. <laughs>
4: I don't think they did, and I think, I mean, uh, uh, Radio 1 obviously needed changing, but that Year Zero thing was always going to be a fatal thing for Top of the Pops, because it kind of, it cut that umbilicus to Radio 1, that link between the shows, in a sense, between Top of the Pops and the radio. By the time we're watching this episode, 94, it doesn't feel connected in the same way that shows used to feel, with the DJs and with the Radio 1 family, Mm. however dubious that might be. Um, Um... and, and yeah. oh, to be honest with you, although reading today, yeah, it, it had celeb presenters and then it went back to normal presenters. I don't remember that change. I remember it just suddenly realising it's fucking celebrity presenters all the time. And not not watching it because of that. I think most yeah. of us at that time weren't, you know, religiously no. watching Top of the Pops. Um, I mean, no, like, uh, no uh, I wasn't either. No. I mean, unless unless there was a tip-off that one of
5: our bands exactly. was on. I exactly. mean, I was, I, I was usually... Um, I mean, I was usually at a gig. I was down mm. the pub at this point. Although I, I did I did actually go to an episode um, uh, not long after this. It was mm. on the 30th of June uh, in 94. I was I was smuggled in in uh, these animal oh, men's car. In the boot one. of their car. Uh, <laughs> because they only had... I think they had five passes for L Street and there were six of us. So I had to hide in the boot of the car. Which, um, considering what previous punky bands like the stranglers had done with journalists in the boot of a car i was taking my life in my Mm -hmm. hands but it was a shit episode then it was um shaker maker by oasis that was on um Swamp Swamp right. Thing by the Grid, that was alright. Right, reel to real featuring the Mad Stuntman, but it wasn't even I like to move cool. it, move it, it was go on, move. Yeah, Slightly yeah. lesser follow-up. But at least... Like, Neil, did you oh, ever go? Did you ever oh, go I, I went more?
4: really, really late, and I think that was towards its dying days, and it was with a fucking a terrible band called Linkin Park, you probably heard of. Um, but oh, yeah. this was really late. <laughs> 2001, oh, and this was, you know, it was the Elstree Studios, wasn't it? I, I seem to recall. It was like um, mm-hmm. It was like right next door to EastEnders yeah. and stuff like that. So I seem to recall with the photographer jumping over the fence or something, getting into Albert Square and all that sort of stuff. Yes, but but, but the cor- <laughs> being in those corridors in the BBC studios um, that were just so familiar from years of watching, you know, British television was still utterly utterly magical. Mm. The thing is. You can see throughout this episode that what mattered about Top of the Pops, in a sense, and I'm not saying the rundown mattered or the chart mattered, but it bloody did, man. The chart did matter. In this episode, the chart doesn't really matter. The rundown (laughs) is kind of shown whilst there's another video going on, the ups and downs are kind of an irrelevance to most people. We're not yet at the point that we're probably at now where the, what is number one really doesn't matter at all. But there's an increasing sense in 94 that the producers of Top of the Pops don't really care about chart movement as such. They just really care about getting the biggest names on the show and, and, and stacking it full of that, hmm. you know.
3: Yeah, by the way what about the yeah. theme music fucking hell I don't, I mean oh, it's grim isn't it now get out of that by Tony Gibber or Gibber I don't know and nor do I care but it's shit isn't it it's the 8th top of the pop the theme, worst. and and uh, the only thing I can find out about Tony Gibber was that he co-wrote New Beginning for Books Fizz in 1986 well, okay. Now Get Out of That was used from 1991 to 1995, and the opening credits consist of people dancing on some stairs in a warehouse with a spinny mechanised logo.
4: The logo's terrible as well. Yeah, isn't it? Um, it's an awful logo that reminds me of one of the greatest artefacts from this age that Pricey made me aware of, the um, the inside CD insert to Jamie Oliver's um, oh! uh, <laughs> compilation. <laughs> Um, Cooking apostrophe, say, yeah. isn't that it? Jamie Oliver's compilation.
5: Oh. Yeah.
3: That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. But no, I mean it could not be any more nineties. But it's a horrible logo.
3: The, the, the actual opening credits—they've got you know they've got people dancing on. It, it, it's in a warehouse, which is you know it's very nineteen eighty-eight. But it it comes across like like one of the gay exchange adverts, doesn't it? Really. <laughs> <laughs> his bloke with his shirt off and he's on some steps. There
4: is, not only in, in that kind of warehouse thing, but also in the way that the audience are treated in the episode, I think an attempt mm. to kind of get a Hitman and Her style the uh, yes. well, yes. environment going, you know, yeah. and um, it, well, I'm sure as we'll discuss later, um, it, it's not entirely successful. Obviously.
2: Hello, good evening and a welcome to Britain's largest music show, of course that's Top of the Pops this is robbie and i'm mark and coming up now we have a song that went straight into the charts at number five it's blur with girls and boys
3: Robbie Williams and Mark Owen stood on a balcony as the show begins, there's no groping uh, from them, and neither are the surrounding girls going mental at them, which is very odd because they, you know, they were pretty much at the peak round about this time. Take that. What was the what was the general opinion amongst the panel here about take that circa ninety four? I tell you what,
5: right? I, am, I I was. I was quite amazed when they finally took off because I remember then when they first appeared, and I thought they were doomed because the lead singer mm-hmm. had kind of very dated Billy Idol hair, Gary Barlow, um, yeah. and it took several attempts to get them off the ground. Um, I think they had three, uh, the it took them four attempts to have a hit. The first three singles flopped completely. Um, and they finally made the top 10 with a Tavares cover version. Um, they were always on Saturday morning TV. Oh, it only um, takes a minute, girl. Yeah. Yes, uh, they were always on Saturday morning TV. They they did tours of gay clubs and school assemblies and all that kind of stuff. All that kind of stuff you got to do if you're a boy band. Fucking know. Didn't mix them up. I know. But boy bands themselves. <laughs> th- this is what. This is what. I mean, it, it worked. It was tried and tested. But boy bands at this point, or well, not in '94, but by about '92, seemed really passe. Um, and there's there's nothing mm. about them to suggest that they'd be any more successful than. Big Fun or Bad Boys Inc. Um, two bands who, God, yeah. um, Ian Levine, also had a hand in all of them. By this point, as you say, '94, it amazingly, it's happened. and uh, By doing the really old-school thing of uh, having the lads with their hair slicked back, bare-chested, in a waterfall, just, you know, using all that kind of <laughs> homoerotic imagery that also uh, appeals to teenage girls, they just went really root one with it, and it did work. But... Um, mm yeah i i don't know i i don't think we hated take that I, I, I think our readers i think i think our readers did i think our readers would have been that kind of grumpily alternative they would have thought oh fucking hell commercial mm. pap but i think we saw it as this kind of parallel universe It didn't really matter to us we weren't against it we weren't necessarily for it i, I remember when robbie left take that there was a huge debate in them. Um, and Melody Maker editorial meeting because I strongly, strongly felt that we should cover it, that it was a massive story. Mm. Robbie leaving Take That was just the biggest thing in music that week. Um, even just from a sort of pop cultural phenomenon of the kind of phone lines and people in, in, in hysteria having breakdowns and, you know, mm. people calling the Samaritans and that kind of stuff. I thought it was just a huge story. And there was another contingent of the maker who were like, oh, no, nah, this is nonsense, this kind of chart pap, it's not our territory. It was really quite, quite a heat debate about it. I, I think I lost on that occasion. Um, oh. But, yeah, it, it, it was not our world and so they weren't worth hating. I think we probably hated Cooler Shaker and we hated uh, Ned's Thomas yeah. Dustbin. More than, more, yeah. much more than
4: we would hate to take that. Yeah, we would. Um, we were much more likely to avowedly hate rock music than hate pop music. If pop music was kind of, if pop music was inoffensive enough, I guess, and wasn't doing us any harm, we kind of left it alone. Mm. Um, And and in some cases we celebrate. I mean, I remember we had, we had people like Betty Boo in the paper. We
5: had Kylie. I, I amazingly managed to get Two unlimited on the front cover, which, which, uh, yeah, we, we actually lost about three or 4,000 readers that week, but we picked them up next week. And I still, you know, I, I still feel that was, that was valid. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that, that that was an example of, of uh, the the sort of crazy atmosphere at the paper where if you presented a case for something strongly enough, Jonesy would just wave it through. And say, all right, okay, go on, put it on the <laughs> cover and see what happens.
4: I, 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 it, I think Price is right that in the few years before this, from '92 onwards, boy bands were sort of back and resurging in a sense. But before mm. that, they were considered really passe and. And I think what you can possibly detect is that the industry in 92, 93, 94 is reasserting its kind of traditional ways of doing things to a certain extent. They were perhaps a little bit scared by the fact in the late 80s and the early 90s, you had an awful lot of people in the charts and getting popular who were dance acts, who were very anonymous, who didn't provide the kind of the, the things that traditional pop music did um yeah so so bands like blur and oasis and bands like take that that very much fitted into traditional models um were, were going to be loved by the industry and and, and yes. marketed really carefully to make sure that make sure that they they, they they got somewhere but like you al i was because take that i think
3: i was slightly surprised that the audience weren't going a bit more crazy around maybe them. The, the the teenage girls of the 90s were a, were a bit cooler and a bit savvier and a bit more aware than their hmm. 70s and 80s counterparts because you'd assume that oh fucking hell they're going to be ripped to shreds but no you know i mean the the the, the girls there are are glad to see them but they i don't think they're pissing themselves now, Mark no. Owen,
5: right? Mark Owen's really good at football. Um, I actually saw him play a celebrity five-a-side game at the Phoenix Festival, maybe around this time. He's really good. And um, it's worth noting that you never see him and former Arsenal and Czech Republic player Thomas Rosiski <laughs> in the same room.
3: <laughs> He's definitely the, the Davy Jones member of the band, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see how fucking tiny he is because yeah. I don't think
5: Robbie Williams is very tall no. either, particularly. But stood next to him, yeah, he's up to his armpit. Yeah. Is, um Robbie Williams, an annoying cunt. yet? I don't know. You know, I don't think. I think we can say in hindsight, oh yeah, the signs are there. But I think at the time we all found him quite likable. Yes. I think him. I think these two were the two likable members of Take That. Yeah, you, you had. I mean, no, nobody liked Barlow, and um, you had Jason Orange and the other one. I can't even remember his name. Yeah. What's his Ken. name? <laughs> Ken. Right, Jason Orange and Ken, who were just interchangeable. Nobody knew what they looked like. You just couldn't, you know, yeah. p- couldn't pick them out of a police lineup. But these, these two were the two of the, you know, they were fairly likable. And um, but, I don't know, the, but he, he is, he's, he's mugging to camera the yeah, whole time, isn't yeah, he, Williams? Yeah. In it's, this,
4: uh, I mean, we'll probably cut this as we go along. But for me, Robbie got to be an annoying cunt when he went solo, and when he started hanging around with Oasis and all. Uh, that. And then he revealed himself. I remember seeing him live, actually, about 97. I think he'd been solo, solo by then at Wembley, of all places. Mm. And he was fucking appalling. It was like being entertained for two hours by Butland's Butlin's fucking redcoat, who just <laughs> got a bit above his station, you know, and mm. it somehow sold out Wembley. He was appalling. But at this point, yeah, they just look like a pair of, of
3: young lads having fun. Williams does an impersonation of Alan Wicker doing an impersonation of David Frost, (laughs) and points out that Top of the Pops is Britain's largest music show. The the weird thing is, Williams doing that impression there, that is,
5: uh, even at that point, that's an impression that's 20 years old. It's the sort of thing that, Mm. probably, Mike Yarwood would have done, and maybe Robbie Williams... Heard his dad doing an impression of Mike Yarwood, doing yes. an impression of Wicker, doing an impression mm-hmm. of you know, um, uh, uh, it's David mm. Frost, isn't it? So uh, it, it's it's weird how th- that that kind of thing gets handed down from generation to generation, and there's a disconnect. I bet Robbie Williams had, didn't have any idea that you know what is he twenty years old? Who the fuck
3: David <laughs> Frost like that, was, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. So Owen introduces the opening act. Blur with their latest single, Girls and Boys. Formed in London as Seymour in 1988, Blur were signed by Food Records in 1990 as a post-Madchester band and were quickly lumped in with the clique of bands known as The Scene That Celebrates Itself. Am I right there? Yeah. Because I know fuck all about yeah, Blur. Yeah, um,
5: basically, mm. uh, Blur straddled uh, awkwardly The Scene That Celebrates Itself, which is better known as shoegazing, and the kind of second wave of baggy. So... Their song, their early songs were quite kind of dreamy and psychedelic, but they did have that kind of shuffling beat behind them. Um, there's No Other Way being probably the most famous early single, which was their first appearance on Top of the Pops. And um, mm. there's a story about that in um, the biography by Stuart McConey of, of Blur, that Dave Balfe, um, who, who was uh, f- former Teardrop Explodes and all of that, who was the co-founder of Food yeah. Records... He gave them all a pill each before they went on top of the Pops. So, Blur's first appearance on top of the Pops, they're all completely out of their minds, watching all the tinsel come down from the ceiling, going, wow. Um, <laughs> Dave, Dave Balth's a mate of mine now, actually, weirdly. It's got a Brighton Mafia. But, um, but yeah, but yeah uh, so that, that that's where they were to begin with. They were kind of these middle-class, druggy southern boys, uh, um making vaguely danceable, um, vaguely psychedelic indie music before they had a complete rethink.
3: Nice one. Although their debut LP Leisure got to number 7 in late 1990 and their second single There's No Other Way got to number 8, the band's next four singles failed to break the top 20 and they were on the verge of splitting up after a fractious US tour. However, this single, the lead release from their forthcoming third album Park Life, which was written after Damon Albarn went on holiday in Magaluf, was picked up on by Radio 1 and it's this week's second highest new entry at number 5. Is this the Beginning of Britpop, no. Um, to be uh, sorry, oh, okay. <laughs> to, to be you know really kind of
5: pedantic about it. Uh, Britpop as a phrase and an idea had been around for at least a year before this. Um, there was the infamous Select magazine front cover "Yanks Go Home," yeah. which was April of yeah. '93, which had Brett Anderson as suede on the front, superimposed mm. on on a Union Jack and and um, the idea of Britpop had been around for maybe a year before that even I suppose Saint Etienne right. Saint Etienne would have been the precursors of it for me, uh, they were the first band who came along in the midst of not only grunge but Madchester and Baggy um, and they mm. were writing very kind of um, Anglo-centric songs, songs that d- dropped um, cultural references that were specifically British and then Suede come along and swayed a very very English, um, almost sort of glam rock revival band, but it was quite pluralistic to begin with. Britpop was a, a quite a wide umbrella, uh, and it had it included anything from from denim to um, mm. corner shop or the Manic Street Preachers or the auteurs or pulp, and, and there was all and it, it hadn't mm. yet solidified into lads, lads, lads. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It was quite quite varied to begin with, I think. But I, I think maybe you've got a point the girls and boys is that turning point it's where it suddenly goes massively overground well
3: it'd be the point where mm. someone like me would, would be start to be aware of it put it that way yeah Blur is the kind of like the marker where I start to part ways with the with the charts because a few months later I remember sitting in a pub with my mate and Park Life comes on the radio and we just look at each other and just say what the fuck is this dog shit <laughs> <laughs> fuck fuck the charts and I just stopped I just, I just stopped taking interest in the charts then it was just like right okay they seemed like a band that for the first time here was a band that that I perceived to be the generation below me and it's just like oh mm. if that's what you're doing I can't be fucking arse with it I mean because at, at this time music wise even though they're exactly your age were the same age as me
5: Um, yeah I think they're probably born in about 68 right Something like that.
3: Well, that's me proven wrong, but there's still shit anyway. I can't be doing with Blur. <laughs> really do. I mean, I can see that they are a proper band, and as we'll discover in this episode of Top of the Pops, you know, proper bands appear to be very thin on the ground at the minute. And I can see their references and I've heard, you know, I'd read about them before I'd even heard them. But I, I, the thing that does it for me is that Damon Albarn's got a cunt's voice. I just hate his fucking voice. <laughs> he sings like a cunt. <laughs> He's in a feeler top, but the the logos appear to have been covered over. Basically, you know when Blue Peter was on and they used to cover up yeah, yeah. Bird's Custard and stuff like that with stickers. Or um, the logos on um, on people in, on Jeremy Kyle. Um, so yeah, that's there's that. Did you have any dealings with Blur?
5: I did, yeah. Um, but I think I, I've ranted on enough, so I'll, um, let Neil have his say.
4: Well, I was never allowed to review Blur because I think I think it was kind of understood that I, I really hated him and I kind of was continually banging on about how much I hated him in print. Looking back though, it's it's odd, you know, being young. The, the way the narrative goes these days is being young is cutting loose and all about pleasure and having fun. Well, hold on a minute. Being young can also be about denying yourself pleasure for, for really important reasons. I mean, Blur, when I listen to this song now, I have to admit there is pleasure to be got from this song. It's not a bad song. But at the time in 94... Um, and like Pricey said, I think this is round about the year that Britpop really starts proudly calling itself that, starts draping itself in the flag a little bit. And I just found that all just hugely sort of objectionable. Um, I also kind of at the time was listening to things that just made the idea of just basically rejigging the kinks seem a bit, you know, uh, not enough. Really. So at the time, I was kind of denying myself pleasure in a sense. I refused to listen to Blur. I just would not listen to them. And I, and I just really, really hated them. But looking back, there is pleasure to be had in this song. And I also suspect that part of the reason that I didn't like Blur was that Damon Alburn, like me, is a middle class boy. <laughs> and there was a bit of reflexive mm. self hatred going on there. Mm. Um, you know, mm. um, but any, anyone who kind of wants to know about Britpop, I'd suggest a couple of things. One, read. An article, thats I think it's in the Telegraph and it's one of the worst articles I've ever read um, called 10 Reasons Hmm. Why Britpop Changed Modern Manhood it's fucking appalling and it's all about us recovering our confidence and and that was something I was massively resistant to at the time this whole idea that we should be proud to be British and we should be, you know, this whole kind of jingoistic kind of notion of Britpop that was around at the time but for a converse kind of thing, read Taylor Parks' piece on Britpop, which is on the quietest hell yeah I mean, I've, I disagree with some of it, but it, it's a fantastic look at that era. I felt that Britpop was it my, is. as a writer, Britpop was what I had to write against. This idea that music mm. had, could, uh, had to always be so <clears throat> in hock to the past, and that also only a certain type of Britishness seemed to be being celebrated, and that was either a kind of Larry Lad rockness or a kind of Tommy Steele clicking your heels in the air mm. jazz handness which I kind of got from Blur. But looking back, I I can't deny, they were good songwriters, they produced their music really well, and there were doubtless joys to be had. But I was too frowny... Too serious and basically not getting any. So (laughs) I just wasn't I just kind of had a reason to hate Blur that was far more important to me than the music. And it was really for political reasons and and cultural Mm. reasons rather than just the music. I think it's interesting what Neil says there about Mm. being in hock to the past because um
5: when I'm teaching my my students about britpop and God they they weren't even fucking born, which is Mm. terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um Lucky
3: Bastards. The the
5: one thing yeah, the, the one thing <laughs> one thing that occurred to me is that it's the first youth culture movement I can think of that was completely retro. Um, mm. And even, I mean, Blur a case in point, because on their previous album, Modern Life is Rubbish, they were dressed like two-tone rude boys, um, which they were the yeah. right age to have probably been that um, ten years earlier. And... Mm. Um, by this point, mm. Girls and Boys, they've moved on to mid-80s soccer casuals in, in Fila and Takini and Lacoste and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and, mm. yeah, certainly uh, um, For Tomorrow, which was the great, great single on the previous album, did sound like the kinks. Just a wonderful record. Probably their best record. Um, and by this point, they've moved on to kind of 80s synth pop. There's something quite human-league about
3: Girls and Boys. The uh, comparison's always been made to Duran Duran right. on okay. this song, yeah, I can isn't see it? that
5: as well. Definitely, it's got got that kind of planet Earth. Mm, I think I don't know. To me, it you know from a DJ point of view, it, it blends nicely to Don't You Want Me. It's is almost got exactly the same beat. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a brilliant Pet Shop Boys remix. Uh, I think it's on the on the 12 inch, uh, where um, mm. Neil Tennant or I guess probably Chris Lowe focuses completely on that high pitch ah, 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 that bit. Um, just loops it over and over. Mm. Um, but lyrically, I. I think all the things that are awful about this song are also what's good about it. I, I quite like the callousness. Yeah. We didn't have the word chav in those days. It wasn't a thing that anyone said, but it's, it's no. kind of chav hate, isn't it? Um, but it's yeah. also this weird yeah. kind of fascination. Yeah. They're having it both ways. They're having it both ways in this song. They're, they're looking, they're, they're peering with horror and fascination at the lads. Um, they're aware that the lads are having yeah. all the fun. And they're kind of taking the piss in this kind of mm. sarcastic, uh, middle class voice—the the, the voice that you, you know you mentioned, Damon singing like a cunt. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know. All the thing, yeah. I can't really put it any better than that. The, the, the callousness of it is actually something that, in a weird, mm. perverse way, it, it does appeal to me. That it is completely nihilistic, and um, the way in which they clearly despise the working class but also kind of envy them is what makes it an interesting record to me. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if it turned out that this song directly inspired Design for Life by the Mannix, you know, that line, we don't talk about love, we only want to get drunk. It almost seems like a kind of um, uh, backhanded piss take of Blur Girls and Boys. And in in the video, there's there's actually a bit in that Mannix video, which is very similar to um, the Blur video. Blur video was uh, directed by Kevin Godley, and it's got you know it's it's got, it's got right, a bunch yeah. of people having the time of their lives on holiday, and um, uh, I I I think that, that that in itself is is what what gives it some kind of value and some kind of traction to me. That almost accidentally, it you know it's 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 almost revealing more about Blur than, than it attends to, and I think that's what makes it an interesting record. Plus, mm. it's just a great song. I I used to I used to play football with with Damon Albarn. Um, Every every Sunday um, through the Britpop period, with a bunch of other music biz people, Um, he he wasn't very good, but neither was I. Um, But uh, I, I I think you know he 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 genuinely was interested in football. He's a Chelsea fan, all this kind of stuff. Oh, he's even more of a
3: cunt than I thought he was.
5: (laughs) 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 So (laughs) so um, you know, at least there was some sincerity in his fascination with that kind of culture by the way, do, do you know the argument that girls and boys is about anal sex this this is right. another thing that uh, it comes it comes up in uh, uh, Stuart McConey's book, just the whole the chorus girls who are boys who like boys to be girls who do boys like their girls that's the bit that right. supposedly is kind of coded and a lot of people on the gay scene love love the song because of the line, do boys like their
3: girls I uh, didn't know that that's,
4: it's the start of something, in as much as it feels like the start of kind of the first alternative culture, if you like, or, you know, alternative bit of music that is, it it starts to be judged now from here on in by success, by chart success. And that, and that's why, you know, Oasis come along in a year's time. And what is, what was previously called, you know, our bands to a certain extent or alternative bands, Mm. alternative culture, um, has now become entirely about success. Probably in a reflexive kind of shame about the '80s. Um, in a, you know, this was an attempt to leave the '80s behind to a certain extent. Um, so, so, but this is the start. I would say '94 definitely is the time when Britpop pop starts becoming starts sticking in my gullet a little bit. Yeah. As a, and I agree with Simon that before then, I think it was way more pluralistic than it becomes. In in '94 '95 times, so by '95 you really are just talking about you know big white male bands to a large extent.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean the thing about I think about Britpop for me it was it was just rammed down my throat. I mean when I moved back to London, I was working for Richard Desmond on his Wank Mags, and mm-hmm. it it was an open plan office and you know there was a good mix of different people there, you know male and female, but the uh, the stereo got absolutely dominated by younger lads who wanted to hear Park Life then they'd put on uh, What's the Story Morning Glory or whatever it was and so uh, I just equate that with looking at gaping arseholes and finding you know I was was looking I was was looking at tits and listening to arseholes and it was I was just there sitting well can, can can, can, uh, can I put Ready to Die on now or
4: Girls and Boys, it's a song that secreted a kind of ton of significance it might not have otherwise got. Basically because it's been so used, Mm. do you know what I mean? In football highlights, in any documentary that is going to mention the 90s, the opening to Girls and Boys will just come on as just that instant signifier. So honestly, until I saw this episode just now, um, I haven't heard that song in decades because I haven't sat all the way through it, do you know what I mean? It's just always been there perhaps because of the general indiness of people who decide on the music for football highlights or something mm. but that is what it's become an instant night is signifier
5: yeah it's, it's a relatively forward-looking record compared to what mm. Britpop became and Blur yeah. were a relatively forward-looking band if you listen to the album Park Life as a whole um there are more ideas going on there musically than you'll hear in the entire back catalogue of Oasis. Even mm. though they, you know, Blur did definitely have their kind of retrogressive moments, like Tracy Jacks or whatever, and the song Park Life, which is absolutely mm. unconscionably awful. Yeah. But <laughs> I, you know, if, if if I was forced at gunpoint to choose between Blur and Oasis, I'd always choose Blur. I mean, the, the answer to that question, who yeah, do you, know, I would you as feel, well. Blur or Oasis? It would it would always be the answer to the question mm. would always be Pulp, actually, or Saint Etienne, <laughs> or Suede, yeah. or The Manic Street Preachers, or Tricky, or fuck anything, you know, anything mm. but those yeah. two. But if you absolutely had to choose, then it's
3: Blur all day long for me. And you'd, you'd, you'd read about the both of them slagging each other off, and it's just like like my dad used to say when he used to watch Question Time on the news. It's like cat shit having a go at fucking dog shit for <laughs> stinking a <of> shit. <laughs> <laughs> But the actual performance, we, we, we've got to make mention of the performance, because the two things that grab you here is that even though um, even though the the have-to-sing-live rule has been dropped, Damon Alburn singing live, it's the first time we've seen the Elstree studio, and it looks absolutely massive on the telly, doesn't it? It looks like there's loads of people there. Yeah,
5: all these fire escapes everywhere and all this kind of stuff. I actually, um, I mean, this becomes yeah. more apparent during the rest of the episode, but... The crowd are mm. too much sort of front and centre for my liking. I know that there have been some periods mm. of Top of the Pops history that we've looked at where the crowd almost gets shunted out of view. Other times where they're more, you know, to the forefront and, and louder. In in this episode, they're insanely loud. I think. Yeah, and I mean, the they're whole,
4: just you know right in your face. The whole presentation of it. Um, I mean, there's no moments really of intimacy and closeness with anyone who appears on this episode the bands are usually seen from above and a distance so are the audience and the camera is swooping around them it's all very slickly done mm. but there's none of those sort of i don't know special little odd moments that made top of the pots kind of what it was you don't really get the feeling that yeah. you're on stage with these
3: bands you get the feeling that yeah you're, you're
4: witnessing a video being mm.
3: made in, in one way we're seeing more of the audience in one way we're not we're seeing more of them there but you know, we're not seeing one or two of them picked out. They're just a bit of a faceless herd, aren't they? Mm, Yeah, totally. So the following week, Girls and Boys dropped one place to number six and slid out of the chart. The follow-up to the end would only get to number 16, but the LP went straight in at number one in May of this year. Girls and Boys will be voted the single of the year by both the NME and Melody Maker. This was your favourite song of the year, chaps. Hang on.
4: Fuck all to do with Hang me, Hang on, is that,
3: is that the readers or the writers? Got to be clear about that. It's Apparently, it's the writers. Mm. Um, well, the, t- the top five, the critics' choice, top five was Girls and Boys, then Live Forever by Oasis, what? Aftermath by Tricker, Regulate by Warren G, yes. and Connection by Elastica. Uh, at mm. least Warren G was in there. So how much, right. how much say did you would you have in, in the end-of-year list?
5: Do you know what? Um, the, the we, you know, we, we'd all kind Did you get of, a little
3: ballot like Eurovision or something? Exactly. Uh,
5: we'd, yeah, um, we, yeah, we would all sort of scribble it down in good faith and give it to Jonesy. Alan Jones, the editor, um, he was, uh, fascinating character. He was this kind of, he was a bit like Aslan from, you know, C.S. Lewis or, uh, mixed with the Cowardly Lion. He was a very leonine, hairy Mm. uh, guy who'd been around since the 70s. He was a sort of genial, avuncular figure, although you didn't want to get on the wrong side of him because he's hard as nails as well. But um, he was quite um, hands-off, it's a polite way of putting it, which would be to say that he did spend a lot of the day and the week in the Stamford Arms. So uh, he (laughs) let us kids get on with running the paper to a large extent. Mm. But when it came to things like the Reader's Poll he would be quite hands-on, and he would kind of massage and tweak the results. You'd always notice... Yeah, you'd always notice things like, even though probably nobody in the office had voted for it, the the latest album by Neil Young and Bob Dylan would uh, make (laughs) make a a surprise showing in the top 20, for example. (laughs) And um, he also, I think he had this idea that we shouldn't alienate the readers too much, so we should kind of acknowledge what they're into. So I think things like Live Forever by Oasis getting such a high showing there was partly that, I I would imagine. Oh, yeah. It's that all happened, a fucking cod, isn't
4: it? It is, yeah. But the end of year issue of the music press, well, uh, Christmas wasn't Christmas without the Christmas Melody Maker. It was like, really important. And seeing the top 30 albums of the year, top 30 singles of the year, and also getting to see photos of the writers, that was, <laughs> that was really, really important. You did get to see photos of the writers when they reviewed the singles, but just getting to see them all, kind of... Um, in one issue the end of year issue it was I I didn't think Christmas could start in my house until that was there and I cannot emphasise (laughs) enough I'm sorry to bang on about this but um, Wednesday morning when you are a kid and the music papers were coming out it's the best day of the fucking week it
0: put a little
2: Yeah, but coming up later, we've got two exclusives. One from Madonna and we've got another one from Roxette. But right about now in the studio we have Anna we with Wish Win Your Name. French.
3: So at the end of Girls and Boys, the camera swings round to Owen on his own amongst some people who can't be bothered to respond to Blur. As he moves closer to the other stage, boasting of the two exclusives on this episode, a burly man gets behind him as if he's about to pick him up or look at the writing on the back of his Playboy t-shirt and Owen nearly walks smack into a girl wearing glasses as he introduces Whispering Your Name by Alison Moye. Born in Basildon in 1961, Alison Moyer spent the late 70s working as a shop assistant and piano tuner and then became involved in the Essex pub rock and punk scene when she was invited by Vince Clark to start a duo with him when he left Depeche Mode in 1982. As Yazoo, they scored three top five hits and recorded two LPs, one of which got to number one in July of 1983, but by that time they had already split up. She launched her solo career in the summer of 1984 and her debut LP, Alf, made it to number one and she scored five top 10 hits in three years. After a four-year hiatus, she returned in 1991 with the LP Hoodoo but none of the three singles made the top 40. This is the second single from the yet-to-be-released LP, Essex, a cover of a 1983 tune by Australian singer Ignatius Jones, which has been remixed from an acoustic ballad to a dance tune by Ian Browdy, and it's her first top 40 hit since Week in the Presence of Beauty in 1987, and it's up from number 31 to number 27. Well, who'd have thought Alison Moyet would be popping up here? Fancy seeing you in a place like this, eh, Chas? Yeah, I mean, I was genuinely surprised to see this.
5: I had no memory of it at all before watching the episode. And um, it's mm. interesting hearing you describe the kind of backstory of the song, because when, when I heard it, it sounds like a kind of classic torch ballad. It's, it's got a touch of... melodically, um, yeah. it's got a touch of something like Smoke Gets In Your Eyes about it. But, but given mm. a horrible remix, a horrible kind of... Tsk 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 Kind of thing going on, yeah. which it turns out from what you've told us is more or less the truth. You know, it what basically what it sounds yeah. like is a great song ruined, um, and and it and mm. the particular way in which it's ruined reminds you that we're only two or three years past the high point of KWS and all that all that shite. Mm. You know, kind of remixes yes. of Doobie Brothers songs and stuff like that. Um mm. So yeah, I I I think um, it's I I'd, I'd I'd like to have heard. Uh, Alice and I do the acoustic version. Presumably, it's out there somewhere. Mm. Uh, Yazoo yeah. were absolutely amazing. They they were just a brilliant, brilliant mm. band. I saw them on their comeback. Wonderful band. I think she's really likable as, as as a yeah. person. Yeah. And um, she's singing. You can tell she's singing live. It's a bit rough around the edges, but um, you know she she really commits to it um but the audience mm. really bugged me in this everyone's clapping on every beat clap mm-hmm. clap, clap 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 hands in the air and it's just yeah. awful um and when when we complained about you know previous episodes about the audience being marginalized that seems like a golden age compared to what what we're seeing here where the audience are fucking ruining
4: it with alison moye um I've got a real fondness and a kind of residual defense mechanism with Alison Moyer because I remember I loved Yuzu when they came out and mm. I remember the playground kind of hostility she'd get from just arsehole people in my year at school. Just jokes about her appearance and stuff and I really loved right. Yuzu. And, and even mm. the, the thing is, research... I was trying to find out what album this was from, this song, and it does turn out, doesn't it, that she... Um, Recorded a quite bare bones acoustic version. The record company sent it back and just said, re record, you know, yeah. re recorded it with Ian Broody, I believe. Um, but mm. It, mm. reading about, trying to find out what album this was from, you know, you're tapping Alison Moyer into Google, and first article that comes up, the first quote, at 50, Alison Moyer is unrecognizable from the scary fat punk of her early Yazoo days with Vince Clarke. Do you know what I mean? Ooh, this okay is still acceptable no. to fucking say. And, and and then it then it goes on to say she is yeah. now lithe and elegant with perfect posture and dark wavy. Sh- I mean, for, for, have mm. we progressed? Have we progressed oh, or she progressed? Or what? Do you know what I mean? So, and, and, and,
5: she, and, mm. and it's, it's implied that, that she's meant to be grateful uh, for, for yeah, that. Absolutely, that description, you know?
4: absolutely. and the yeah. last one I saw was at forty-eight, the honey blonde who was once operatic-sized now looks so amazingly slinky. You it's them, just yeah. Yeah. the bigotry that is still acceptable in pop writing staggers me and would never have fucking passed the mark at Melody Maker, not in a million years.
5: Yeah. There's um, an interview with her that I watched earlier today uh, that, that Danny Baker tweeted um, today. Uh, and it's uh, Alison Moye talking to Australian TV. Uh, and um, mm. in that, she she reveals that at some point, not that long ago, she just... She she was so sick of her past that she trashed all her gold discs and burnt all her memorabilia, just smashed it up mm. and threw it in a skip hell. and just just wanted to start again. And um when when mm. you when you come out with quotes like that that you know Neil just came out with from, from those interviews, you, you can see why. You can see why she just thinks, Oh, fuck yeah. that.
3: Yeah. You know? But where is she in nineteen ninety four then, apart from being on a stage well, on she's top been... of the pops?
5: Well th- this is what amazes me. I was I was surprised that she even had it hit. This year, I, I did She had know. a hit,
4: and it's kind of a bit, a, a, where she's at is being pushed around by a record company, and you know, I think I think there is a really good yes. song here, um, but it's kind of blanded out a bit by the production of it, and and and. and and, yeah. you know, it is a yeah. song which this audience can clap along to. And it, it shouldn't be, actually. The, the lyric is a little mm. bit more interesting than that.
3: Yeah. I mean, she's on a massive stage uh, and she's wearing a leather knee-length coat and she's got dyed blonde hair and she's backed up by a, a woman on a synth. And the, the kids are going mental for this, but you have to ask yourself, are they going mental for the song or going mental for the beat? You think they're loving the beat? I think the beat is, is everything roundabout this time and they don't care what's been sung over the top of it
5: exactly yeah it's almost but you know what the, the way in which they clap on every beat is actually a bit naff it's a bit like granny claps you know <laughs> like when you see like old people's homes and they'll probably the way that uh, in a previous episode uh, people in, in a retirement home were clapping to dollar to uh, you know David Van Day uh, clapping on the on beat
3: mm. uh, not, not the off
5: beat and there's, there's something really lame and naff about that
3: but, but then again, weren't well, a lot of records at this period granny clubs? Well, I, I don't know.
4: Well, there's, there's, quite a few, there's quite a few. Basically, what will happen uh, over the course of the episode, I think, is that if, like you say, a, I mean, ha- I don't necessarily want to call it this, but a dance beat comes on. Then Mm. what do we do to the dance beat? We clap and we go whoop whoop whoop, and this is what the audience do at top of the pops. And Mm. it's kind of it's almost expected of them. The feels that there's no actual connection between the crowd, and uh, you don't really know whether are they into any of this music. You know, are they into Mm. any of these bands or these artists at all? Mm. I don't know. It just seems like a crackerjack style Mm. party (laughs) that just you know it, it is you know has to happen the connection between sort of the, the people playing and the audience is a little bit gone because of the spectacle and because they've got it a mm. bit too slick.
3: So the following week, Whispering Your Name jumped up to number 18, its highest position, but she would never trouble the charts again. She wouldn't record for another eight years after falling out with Sony Records due to the uh, due to the way she was pissed about on this album, but her greatest hits compilation singles got to number one in 1995. It's quite a loss, someone like her having to uh, feeling they have to drop out of the music scene. Yeah,
5: but I also quite respect people who just like I say think fuck that and just walk away. She she lives in Brighton, um, not not far yeah. from me and uh you know, I I don't think she's got any any interest whatsoever in uh being recognized, walking around being a celebrity, any of that stuff. She, she's going on tour and um mm. The, uh, the the reason she gave in this Australian interview that I, that I watched was that she thought that her tour in Australia uh, in the eighties was just really shit, and she wanted to go back and do a better job. <laughs> yeah, it's not as if she she's, she's not going to promote an album or to raise her profile. She just just for her own kind of psychic mm. well being wants to sort of right her wrong, and I I, I quite respect that. Yeah. Oh,
3: good on her.
2: Now this next tune's from a film called Philadelphia. If you haven't been to see it, go to see it, but take a box of tissues with you. Also, you might learn something at the same time. It's by Bruce Springsteen. It's called Streets of Philadelphia.
3: Williams, on the balcony, advises us to go to the pictures to see Philadelphia, as we might learn some at. Oh, and take a box of tissues as well. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we won't go there. But he also... I didn't know it was that kind of film, I've got to be honest. You know? He also introduces the video for Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen. Born in New Jersey in 1947, Bruce Springsteen got his start as the lead singer of the Castiles in the mid-60s before joining a power trio called Earth in the late 60s. He was signed to CBS in 1972 and was dubbed the future of rock and roll by John Landau in 1974 but the only UK chart action he got in the 70s was as the writer of Blinded by the Light which Manfred Mann's Earth Band took to number 6 in September of 1976. It wouldn't be until late 1980 that he grazed the UK top 40 with Hungry Heart but he scored 10 UK chart hits throughout that decade. Up until now the 90s have seen him fall out of favour with Human Touch being his only hit of the decade when he got to number 11 in march of 1992 this is the follow-up to the live cover of lucky town which only got to number 48 in april of 1993 and it's taken from the tom hanks film philadelphia and it's the highest new entry this week at number four now we can talk about the video, but I think the thing that I want to bring up before that is the fact that while this video is going on, they absolutely chomp through the chart yep. countdown from number forty-two num- to number eleven as if it doesn't mean shit. It annoys
4: me massively that, that the yeah. rundown is simultaneously shown with the video, depriving us, depriving yeah. us of the chance to hear Mark Owen say in at number nineteen, Pantera with "I'm Broken." Uh, yeah, you know, I want to. I want to <laughs> hear that. I want to, you know. And the rundown is important. It's the chart. It is. It, it's not it just is. the graphic to be ignored. Um, mm. you know, it, 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 it's part of the kind of degrading of the show. I think that would lead to its demise a few years later.
5: Yeah, it's funny actually. Um, I got a real sense of 1994 um, by seeing those names on the mm. rundown because the first three names were very Melody Maker acts. you got Suede, Sensor, and the yes. Charlatans. fucking Sensor. I went um, uh, laser questing with Sensor with once. <laughs> Did um, you? Because that, that was the kind of crap that we ended up doing at Melody Maker. Yeah,
3: um,
5: yeah in
4: the shameful final years.
3: Were they any good? <laughs>
5: What as a band or no? Um, Laser Quest. No, we um, we all got our asses kicked by sort of loads of nine year old kids. It was it was humiliating. Uh, yeah,
4: um, but I do remember.
5: I bet
3: Rage Against the Machine were f- fucking far better at Laser Quest uh, <laughs> as well. <laughs> Everyone
4: at Melody Maker at that at that time had to take a band to a stupid location, um, which was yeah. I, right. I remember
5: I, I went uh, paintballing with Ride as well. So yeah, it's <laughs> a bit of a sort of running theme. It sounds like you're pitching
4: at Tony Hayes, Simon. Mm. <laughs> uh, it does I took um, ultrasound to Legoland <laughs> okay. um, no hilarity did ensue oh. uh, I yeah, remember with
5: Sensor just... um, on the way to the Laser Quest uh, stopping off um, to go to a late night garage to get some snacks and um, they came back with, with loads of chomps because chomps were only 10p Yeah. so clearly they, they didn't have a massive <laughs> record company advance I don't think
3: uh, chomps were better <laughs> but... than fudge though yeah, I've got, I've got to yeah, take yeah, my hat yeah. off to him for that. Fair dues. Mm. But mm.
5: also, there's loads of these kind of um, pop house or soul house um, artists like Alice Limerick, Wendy Mot- Moten, Zane, and so on in the chart. A lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, But also, yeah, I was surprised to see Pantera in the top t- I had no idea yeah. Pantera made the top 20.
3: Well, we need to talk about the charts yeah. now, I think, because by, by the time 1994's rolled along... Things are very different in chartland, aren't they? Um we don't see the slow progression of a of a of a single making its way up the charts. I mean this week the previous highest new entry, Rocks, by Primal Scream, had dropped ten places down to number seventeen. And uh Morrissey, um the more you ignore me, the closer I get, new entry at number eight last week. This week it's number thirty one. What did he say to, to make that happen? <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> What's he done this time, the stupid cunt? Was
5: was he expressing scepticism about the the exchange rate mechanism or some yeah, other? Probably, um, yeah, s- minor detail of, of uh, uh, the European Union. Yeah, I mean, fucking up. I mean, we we speak on a day when you know we're we're recording this on a day when uh, Morrissey um, uh, appearing live at Six Music has expressed support for um Anne Marie Waters the, mm. the failed UKIP leadership uh, candidate who also is is a director of Sharia Watch and was a founder of Pegida UK with Tommy Robinson of the yeah. EDL this is what Morrissey has become now so have what... i
3: said Morris is a cunt in this episode yet <laughs> no okay you yeah are. sorry let me let me let me sort that out Morris is a cunt he
4: is um what, <laughs> what you're seeing by the way Al, um with what you were talking about um with the chart, it's singles coming in, um and being in the charts about two, three weeks now, and then going. Mm. There's not the slow build-up to the... No, to there um, isn't. Uh, or the slow leaving, either. They're, they're coming in and going out very quickly, apart mm. from annoying records, like the number one records, yes. usually, yes, um, that do stick around for fucking ever. Everything else yeah. moves about a bit, bit much faster than it has done in the past. Um, But the number one, Annoyingly, which is usually pretty poor, stays Mm. there for a while.
3: Yeah. Is it because it's only a hardcore fan base of a band that's buying the record and no one else is bothering? because I mean like we've seen Blur you know this is this is like the uh, the coming out party of Blur you know one of the biggest yeah. acts of the 90s whether you like them or not and I was absolutely shocked to discover that the next week it had dropped down a place well I think what happened was
5: that um, major labels who had indie bands on their books had figured out how to get them in the charts they hadn't quite mm. figured out how to get them to mm. stay there because I think in, right, in the years yeah. after this they would format the fuck out of everything so the single would come out then the following mm. week you'd have the CD2 with extra B-sides and maybe even a third one the right. so they figured that out mm-hmm. eventually but certainly um by, by this point they they managed to sort of nail everything to to one day you know these days they call it impact date that, that you know yeah. now now that we don't have physical product anymore uh, rather than rather than release date but I, th- I think the major labels had, had sort of got their game pretty tight in terms of getting hit records and mm. there was something quite retro as well about that because the jam used to do it didn't they the jam was boom yeah. number one straight in number one yeah so um mm. i think for a band like blur to go boom into the top 10 like that did have for them i would imagine quite quite a pleasing throwback quality
1: mm. i found is out who the band is... was
5: by the way the band were called acacia who um did the cover of the more you ignore me uh, the, the closer i get and and uh, ah, right. they are um now better known for um people like Guy Sigsworth and Talvin Singh and and Imogen Heap who were associate members or members who went on to Mm. bigger things. But they were led by... uh, a black guy I think, I don't want to um, get this wrong but I think a gay black guy so the, the fact of, of him uh, recording this so, you know this, this Morrissey song the more you ignore me the closer I get seemed uh, particularly at the time when, when Morrissey was surrounded by accusations of racism was, was, was pretty powerful anyway sorry off, So uh, are we
3: avoiding trying to talk about Bruce Springsteen by <laughs> the way <All> right. <laughs> oh yeah
4: we were talking about well we haven't started talking about no this, we honestly. haven't no um, shall I is that alright yeah please um, I'm I'm sort of resistant to The Boss mm. for a few reasons uh, that name for a start off I don't yeah. mean Springsteen I mean The
3: Boss yeah. I don't like that
4: um, it makes it sound like or- a
3: fat old manager doesn't it
4: Well, yeah, I've just never particularly liked Bosses, so it's not really a name that appeals. Born in the USA, I've got a big problem with. Basically, because when it came out, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it as an anti-war song. It just just seemed like a big screaming bit of Americanism, which I didn't particularly like much. And finally... uh, that's his fault for,
5: you know... Yeah. You know, uh, people say, oh, it's the audience's fault for not picking up on the subtleties. No, he's an established pop artist. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. So
4: he's having... Yeah, He's, he's having yeah, a of yeah, ways yeah. there.
5: Anyway, go on, carry on. Yeah. yeah.
4: No, no, you're right. The video for Born in the USA is kind of unproblematically, you know, jingoistic and that. But mm. and, and finally, the final reason I'm resistant to him, um, Uncut Magazine... Um, that's that's it uncut magazine <laughs> and their, their fondness for this kind of americana oh, right. yeah um it's just it, it it kind of bores me bruce springsteen one of the few people that i've lied about in print in that i oh. reviewed a gig uh of bruce springsteen that i was only um half at <laughs> but um, he um he he i've always resisted him but i like him on two songs this one and dancing in the dark right um I really like Dancing in the Dark, but th- those moments move me, th- uh, those songs move me a little bit, and it's usually when he's at his most poppiest that I like him. I mm. don't really have time for the serious side of Springsteen, let alone the three and a half hour live sets. Right.
5: Yeah, I've, I've been to a few of those three and a half hour live sets uh, in my job as a, a live reviewer for The Independent on Sunday, um, and um, yeah, they can be a bit of an ordeal, but I, I, I quite... I quite like. I think. I think I like Bruce Springsteen more than I like um, his back catalogue of music. To be honest, I think he comes across right. as a decent guy. He was on the Desert Island Discs recently, and I am really, really warm to him. And um, yeah, I, I just think he's, he's he's one of one of the good guys in in rock music. But yeah, I I, I couldn't sit down and listen to a whole album's worth of it. I think the song Born to Run is absolutely phenomenal. Just this mm. huge, towering, um, spectre esque drama. Uh, I, I, I think I prefer the Frankie version really <laughs> oh man um, uh, but yeah but I'm, what I'm, about this song Chuck? do you know what it is with this song it's the thing that puts me off about it is the whole atmosphere of makes you think doesn't it about about this song, you know <laughs> that it's important and it's got an important message because mm. obviously it's, it's from the film Philadelphia, um, which mm. was a groundbreaking. It's about thing, the AIDS, is AIDS, it? yeah. With Tom Hanks as a sympathetic character, yeah. you know that said. Can you imagine sitting down and playing this for fun? Can you imagine somebody thinking, um, "I Heck. approve of this message so much, and I respect what it's trying to do, yeah. that I'm going to put that record on, and I'm going to put it back on, and I'm going to listen to it again." And, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it's clearly it's it's in inverted commas good. Um, it's you know it's it, it's well produced. It's got a quite sort of dignified um, backbeat to it, which is like his sort of halfway house acceptance of of, of dance culture without mm. going overboard with it. The video. Lots of walking, lots of chicken wire. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know. I I, it, I I was shocked that it went straight. Was it straight at number four? Is that is that yeah. where it's gone yeah. this week?
3: Yeah. It's no entry. Yeah. Wow.
5: And and this 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 can't be on the back of his superstar status because as we've established that that ship had sailed a while ago. Oh, mm. I just
4: remember it getting a lot of radio play. This song at the time uh, a lot during the day because I mean he sort of does he he's got this habit of making records that probably sound good on a radio, but you don't actually want to hear at home. Like you say, I wouldn't want to sit around listening to this, but on the radio, when it comes in, it creates a certain mood. It's Mm. a bit different to other stuff that's in the charts at the time in terms of just its mood and its kind of pace. Um, so I think that's why it was it was a success. Oh, yeah. Did you see the movie? I saw the movie and it was pretty good.
5: But yeah, I mean, I, I I would prefer something like like dancing. I had a real epiphany about dancing in the dark recently. One of these things that you know these songs that been staring in your face all your life, mm. and and just suddenly woof it just gets you and you know grabs your heart or something. I just, yeah, I think it's, think it's uh, it's wonderful. But this, I I think yeah, I think I'd say
3: it's it's quality, but.
5: It's it's hard to love It's
3: decent Well I mean Not even Top of the Pops can respect it Because of the whack The charts over it Yeah So the following week Streets of Philadelphia Edged up to number 3 Then number 2 But no further Becoming the highest placed Bruce Springsteen single Ever On the UK charts The follow up, Secret Garden, only got up to number 44 when it was released in April of 1995, but then got to number 17 when it was re released in 1997, his last top 40 hit in the UK. Streets of Philadelphia, the song would win one Oscar and four Grammys. Four fucking Grammys and an Oscar. I hope he's got a big (laughs) teller.
2: looking sweet as ever, I must say. She just picked up two awards at the recent Brit ceremony, and here she is, HBR, we're violently happy.
3: Cohen wearing a t-shirt that looks like someone is dropping a bayonet or a fountain pen or a syringe on the playboy bunny's head does anybody anybody clock that no <laughs> I spent much of the time looking at it it's obviously a knocked off playboy bunny because it's got its mouth wide open and the sort about to drop on its head and it was doing my head in all episode <laughs> what was going on there but anyway, he does a pretty rubbish job of introducing the next act, which is Björk and her latest single, Violently ape Born in Reykjavik in 1965, Björk Gudmundsdottir rose to national prominence at the age of 10 when a teacher sent a tape of her singing Tina Charles' I Love to Love to Iceland's only radio station, which led to her first solo LP in 1977. After forming an all-girl punk band called Spit and Snot a jazz fusion group called Exodus and a post-punk band called Tippy Tickerass, Icelandic for Cork the Bitches Ass. (laughs) Oh, why do they have to grow up? She formed the Sugar Cubes in 1986. After a run of singles, of which only one made the top forty, hit in 1992, the band split up and she pursued a solo career. This is a fifth release from her LP, Debut, which we all know is a fucking lie because it's her third solo LP. And it's a follow-up to Big Time Sensuality, which got to number 17 in December of 1993, and it's a new entry at number 13. Now the one thing I noticed is that Top of the Pops have started lumping in factoids where they're titling. And this one is double platinum album seller. Fascinating.
4: Some focus group would have I mean not even a focus group. Who makes these fucking decisions?
3: It's probably the same twat who did the titling on Top of the Pops
4: too. Fiddling with things, fiddling with formulas. It's um yeah. It's something that happened in the nineties and um it affected the music press as well. Hmm.
3: Yeah, it's like oh, she sold loads of records. Well, yeah, she's on top of the pop. She twat.
4: Things just getting led to. A, I'm, a, I'm probably just sounding like an old fart. But things getting led by marketeers and kind of accountants too much. I think across the board.
3: But Bjork. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of indie sorts uh, used to bang on about how they had a dance element to the songs, and uh, and this one did. Uh, she kind of changed up her style, and she got with the electronic dance thing. Uh, how did it work out for a chaps in your opinion? Do you know what, right? I
5: reckon this record is the opposite of the Alison Moye record mm. because the house influence is integrated uh-huh. into this, not bolted on. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I used to really like Bjork around this time. I, I still do like her. I think think she's great. Um, <laughs> I, I went round to house once, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> it would have been around this time, yeah, around the time this album. I interviewed her for the Melody Maker um, for, for debut. And um, Did you nick anything? Did I nick anything? No, what happened was... Uh, um, we were meant to meet in a in a Bulgarian um, patisserie in in uh, uh, Finchley Road near where she lived. Right. But the taxi driver took me to East Finchley instead of Finchley Road. So so by the Ugh. time I got there, uh, it was way late, and she had to pick up her kid from school. So we ended up doing the interview at her house. But I already knew her. I was I was the third person in the UK to interview the Sugar Cubes. Um, this was after uh, Mel right. Melody Maker and NME had had, had their go. Um, I I just found. The single birthday. What for the Barry News? Uh, No, this was for the London student, (laughs) Uh, and um, Ah. the the single birthday was just completely uh, enchanting and seemed seemed to fly in out of a clear blue sky, and just an astonishing record to this day. I, I didn't necessarily like all the Sugar Cube stuff after that. Uh, they, they had the kind of downside that the B-52s also had of, of a man shouting wacky stuff over the top uh, <laughs> too often. But um, I think Debut is one of, one of the sort of defining albums of, of this era. And finally Happy is, is a brilliant track. I... Oh, yeah, I Mm. I used to kind of knock around with him. I I didn't finish that story. Uh, I remember I went to a warehouse rave run by uh, the Mutoid Waste Company, who were this kind of collective of crusties Mm. who used to make sculptures out of just bits of detritus. So there'd be a kind of giant wasp made out of a motorbike and a chainsaw hanging from the ceiling and all this. And... um, So, uh, yeah, I went and and there'd there'd be bicycles on the dance floor that people would cycle around. And then, you know, health and safety just went out the window. That's terrible. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But there was a massive vat, a big kind (laughs) of uh, brazier-type oil drum... Of magic mushroom soup, which <laughs> me and the Sugar Cubes <laughs> went and partook of that, and cycled round to crazy right. techno music um, while these uh, metallic wasps loomed overhead. So I kind of, nice. I kind of associate um, Bjork and the Sugar Cubes with this kind of slightly surreal, uh, industrial <laughs> hallucinogenic experience.
4: I love the Sugar Cubes too. I remember uh, the. The, especially think the, the song Birthday but I love the fact mm. that Life's Too Good that album has has some real great moments on it but even early on then you could sort of tell she was going to I know she'd done solo albums but she was going to go fully fledged solo mm. and although I, I, I loved Bjork at this time although this sounded at the time quite timely because dance music and you know that kind of techno music was quite um, a, a thing at the time. It sounds incredibly dated now, but yeah. it still works. It still works yeah. really well, um, especially through big speakers. That template of a dance track with a big belting vocal over it mm. is still kind of being mined to this day. But she, crucially, she's still startling to look at and, mm. and a p- real presence on stage. Um, you know, part of the reason all of us are into pop, I think, um, like we're into football in a sense. You're into football because you don't have to be a certain physical type to be a footballer. You can have, you can be slight of frame, you know, you can be, you know, not conventional in the way and be a footballer. And it's the same with pop. It's not about necessarily being a great musician. It's about being a presence. And Bjork always had that. And she has that in this performance on top of the pops. I think the best performance of the whole show mm. Um you know, Popper's a kind of refuge for f- slightly freaky people. I'm not sure whether post Gaga we've got anything similar to Bjork or, no. or have Maybe Lord,
5: since. do you think?
4: Maybe Lord, yeah. Um, but I don't know. Um, a bit thin on the yeah. ground at the moment, that kind of presence. Because she's startling um, always when you watch her. And she really draws the eye um, in a really interesting way. Um, unlike, I think, everyone else on this show.
3: Yeah. The idea of Bjork being on top of the pops would have been a bit weird a few years previous to this, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. It, it, it <laughs> I would, know. right?
4: I don't know. Didn't, weren't the sugar cubes on top of the pops?
3: I think I they were with Hit. Ed-
5: but um, yeah. but certainly, I, I think uh, when when Debut came out, it, it struck a chord with the kind of people who weren't necessarily reading the indie press. It was um, almost a kind of... Um, a sort of coffee table album in the same way that people would buy Dummy by Porter's Head and it was a, it was a way of, of mm. displaying you you had good taste but that, that, that's not a way of talking it down I think it's a fantastic record but it certainly um, mm. did cross over to um, people who had it as a very sort of tasteful lifestyle accessory.
3: So the following week Violently Happy dropped 12 places to number 25, look again, ridiculous. The follow-up, Army of Me, got to number 10 in May of 1995 and she'd have two more hits that year. I mean, the fact that these records are dropping down as soon as they make the charts, it's, that kind of detracts from the music of the time, doesn't it? Because you, you're simply not getting the chance for them to seep into you like you did before. I mean, there'd be certain songs that, had, you know, enter the charts in the early, late 30s and, you know, five weeks later they're at number one because you've heard them so many times and you get you get to like them. What we've lost is the concept of a
5: consensus hit record that everyone from grannies to little kids is into. Um, we're seeing the beginning, yeah. I suppose, of the fragmentation of culture, even before the internet was a thing, yeah. where if you were into mm. indie music, you'd buy this record all in the first week, or if you're into metal, you, you know, you'd know, buy the Pantera record, or, or whatever, and that's it. It's done. Mm. And it, yeah, you're yeah. right. It, it never becomes yeah. a thing that everyone's talking about in the workplace or the playground. It's very much... Uh, you know, kept to your own little um, enclave of humanity, rather than becoming a, a unifying force, which you know, pop used to be.
4: You know, it's like what you said earlier: Al, that you you didn't give a fuck about the charts at this point. No, and I think Th- that was increasingly increasingly happening for most of us that this was the kind of period where we kind of stopped caring about the charts and consequently stopped watching Top of the Pops, and and only as P- pricey said earlier watch top of the pops if we had been tipped the wink that some band was going to be on that we liked yeah so if i knew that i don't know whale with hobo slumpin sobo babe we're going to be on top of the Chew. Pops, which they might yeah. have been because they were at number 40 in this yeah. week's chart fucking amazing record yeah um and uh, you know that needs stressing as well by the way just that a general theme through this chart is how great the european records are mm, yeah records that aren't from mm. britain um, apart from the number one, unfortunately. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of great Eurobeat stuff in there and things like Whale, which are just amazing records. Mm. Um, you know, it was when I knew people were going to be on that it, it was kind of an event. So if you knew mm. that Pulp or Supergrass or a band like that were on, you did watch it because you wanted to see how that band did on top of the pops because you know it still was an oddity getting one of our bands quote unquote onto Mm. top of the pops but other than that no i wasn't religiously watching this program anymore and i don't think i was listening to the charts on a sunday night either in fact that had probably stopped a long time before that so a cursory look at the charts certainly probably in the pages of the music press but it wasn't exactly something i stared at that much it was kind of like you'd look at that look at the indie chart and then you'd be on to actually the actual reviews the Mm. charts were massively less important to me at this stage
3: what's more important in 1994 than albums or singles
4: the great singles are still important in terms of my listening albums is way more important at this time because a lot of the stuff I was into in 1994 you know they didn't release singles or if they did release singles you didn't get them over here and kind of you know it was albums that you relied upon especially with things like hip-hop and you know the singles that you might have liked were probably not getting in the charts at all Um, Mm. it's odd that that divide came in but it did, I was still keeping an ear out, but you know, when you listen to some of the mediocrity in this episode, you can understand why at that period the charts were not really something that bothered me that much.
1: Thank you, Beo.
2: And now from one lovely lady to another lovely lady. This is Tori Amos. And she's having a pretty good year. You better believe that.
3: Williams does a shit Icelandic impression and then introduces to another, quote, lovely lady, Tori Amos, and a song, Pretty Good Year. Born in North Carolina in 1963, Tori Amos taught herself to play piano from the age of three and started studying classical piano at the Peabody Conservatory of Music from the age of five. After signing to Atlantic Records at the age of 20, she formed the band Why Can't Tori Reed, who released one flop LP, and she went solo in 1990. This is the solo single from her third solo LP, Under the Pink, and it's the follow-up to Cornflake Girl, which got to number four in January of this year, and it's a new entry at number seven. My notes here. Some woman on a piano with a bit of dry ice.
4: Um, my notes here. That's all I got. My notes here. I was a racist about Tori Amos, for which I can only apologise. Um, oh, why? Why? How? I, I wrote a review that... Um, I think... I can't remember if Pricey was the editor of it, actually. Um, an album oh. review um, of Tori Amos's Boys for Pele, or whatever that album was, from 95, which basically, looking mm. back on it, was a stream of kind of um, racist ginger comments um, <gasps> with... Um, you were a gingist. Yeah, I apologise to Tori Amos. I apologise. It was it was fear of a ginger planet stuff. It was it was um, out of order. And I apologise.
5: On, on behalf of ginger people everywhere, Neil, I forgive you. Thank you,
4: Simon. That means a lot to me, man.
3: Come by, <laughs> oh, my lord. <laughs> I mean... Uh, oh, the power of chart music, people. But
4: we've got... With
3: regards to Tori,
4: I like Kate Bush. I like Joni Mitchell, but I hated Tori Amos. It used to anger me. Why? Well, it used to anger me if a band or artist simply agglomerated things without giving it something unique. Um, And and she never did. She was just... Her songs were dull. And her... her, I remember reading an interview at the time that I think majorly put me off her, um, which was full of quotes like, this album is about finding my internal fire and things like that. And... um, um I now understand my matrix. I I, I didn't like the oh, I didn't sake. like the slight new ageness of her vibe. Um I seem to recall it being christened Tampax Rock at the time by somebody. Um, <laughs> uh no, not my not my cup of tea at all, I'm afraid. My notes simply say shaking bush. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I mean I can go on. Um, I've I've had a look at. Please don't, uh, please I've, don't. I've had a look at the lyrics, and they're just nothing. They're just vague, waffle. I, I I don't know what we're meant to take away from this. I mean, okay, she can play piano, right? Um, mm. But here's the problem: she's talented, but she has no genius. And mm. some of the most some of the dullest music known to humanity. Is made by Talent Without Genius. And that's her. Mm. Um, it, it makes me angry actually, not just that she rips off Kate Bush so blatantly, but just the sheer it's 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 like 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 a vapour, this this song, but not 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 in a good way. Um Like a fart under a quilt. There's something really self important about the fact of her sitting there with a grand piano amid all this dry ice singing mm-hmm. this kind of um ostensibly dramatic and important sounding song but when you look at it closely it is just nothing mm. and um I, I you know after watching this episode i you know just i went away went for a walk and thought about it and i started started finding myself getting quite cross about <laughs> it you know a, a two and 3 years <laughs> remove like how dare how dare this be a hit record how dare mm. it absolutely
4: um, that, that's my thought um, i it. i've just i i found um i found the review i wrote and um, oh, wow. if I could just see, seeing as, seeing as we're talking about Melody Maker this will be one of the reviews that Pricey Doubtless waved through so you blaming um, him? I do quote her, no <laughs> I'm not blaming him at all um, I, I, um, I do quote that quote I, I quote her, her interview actually throughout and um, from this quote I'll just read the last paragraph of the review um, I quote her, this album is about finding my internal fire and then I say this well, I went on a Tia Maria and Cronenberg Bender at the Godiva Balty House last night, and my internal fire fell out of <laughs> my arse this morning. And it's a damn sight more, pro- and it's a damn sight more profound than this grotesquery, this kooky mugging, this arrogant self absorption, this monstrous solipsism, this insistence on individual integrity, music as detergent therapy. Tory is the middle-class, bored, lazy retreat from political responsibility and urgency into the dead end of introspection so characteristic of the, quote marks, American artist. So that was, that was mm. my review of, of her album. And I think I'd still stand by that, really. It is very self-absorbed, yeah. dull music.
5: And you didn't go on about it being ginger at that point, so that's that's fine. That's yeah.
3: earlier on in that, yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah, it just seems to be it seems to be a bit of a weird one for this to be on top of the post, doesn't it? I don't
4: know why it got to be a hit. Presumably, radio yeah. plays still. I mean, it's re- still really important. Yeah. Who the time.
3: fuck is buying this shit?
5: <sighs> Fucking mangy girls. I mean, even Cornflake Girl had a bit of something about it, and I suppose at least there was certain novelty to it at that point. But then she brings out this, which has got less of a tune, less of a reason to exist. Mm. Yeah,
3: fuck it. And the charts were absolutely awash with um, American female singers like this, wasn't it? Like Edie Brickell and mm-hmm. and Lisa Loeb. And... <laughs> well, of course, um, I think we're we're only a little while
5: away from the absolute nadir of this, which is Alanis Morissette. She, I think she's yet to appear at this point. Mm. But yeah, that this this is the precursor. This is the gateway drug for that
3: horror. So the following week. Oh, I don't care <laughs> the following <laughs> week, so 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 the following week pretty good year dropped 22 places 22 places fuck's sake that's not enough it's not no, enough just not. drop more to so number 20 that is ridiculous I mean what has happened to Top of the Pops' ability to um to, to ram a song up the arse of the charts Well, um, yeah. Well, with the the charts,
4: meaning less and less. Top of the Pots means less and less. You know, so it just becomes a music highlight show, and that's why you know at the end of Bjork's performance that we that has just been on before Tory, there's no ending to it. It just splish and then into the next bit. There's no kind of drawing of an end to it
3: or a start of another thing.
4: It's just crushed together because it's just you know it's just trying to pack it all in.
3: Yeah because you read you read all these um you know the these articles about top of the pops and they go oh yes you know oh, if you got on top of the pops you were made and and by this point no it's just I mean, probably after seeing this performance on Top of the Box, people were taking their fucking singles back and wanted a refund. <laughs> the follow-up past the mission only got to number 31 in June of this year and she spent the next few years scraping the top 20 before a remix of Professional Widow got to number one in January of 1997. Yeah, whatever. Good for her. Pretty good oh,
2: pretty good good she's very good now as you can see my mama's very excited because we have now got the preview of madonna's new video and it's called i remember i forgot
3: this we are told is the highlight of the show an exclusive performance of the new video by Madonna called I'll Remember. We've already covered Madonna in Chalk Music number 2 and number 7, so let's just cover uh, the 90s side of Madonna. She's already had 12 top 10 singles in the 90s, including the number 1 with Vogue, and even two top 5 hits with the re-release of Crazy For You and Holiday in 1991. What the fuck was going on in 1991 that people wanted old Madonna? (laughs) This is the follow-up to Rain, which got to number seven in July of 1993 and has been recorded for the Joe Petchy movie with honours and it's not been released yet. And yes, this is a premiere, not a world premiere, but a British premiere apparently. And uh, the video consists of, well, Simon, tell us. Um, It consists
5: of Madonna with short black hair uh, and lots of clips of a film that I've Mm -hmm. never fucking heard of until we did this Mm episode. Have you heard of it? No. With with honours no. without no. you, yeah. No fucking up. <laughs> <not>. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I I looked up the plot and it sounds like the most sentimental bollocks ever. Um, it's sort of comedy drama mm. about you know role reversal about a a, a, a rich student swapping places with a, a homeless guy, bloody blah. Um, right. And and yeah, the, here we have the ironically named I'll Remember, because I don't remember it. And even having heard it once, <laughs> no, I'll never I remember it again. It's, so f- it's fucking nothing to... Right, I hate Madonna. I despise Madonna um, for so many reasons, but I'll just rattle through some of them. Pioneer of celebratorial. That is uh, the editorial interference mm. of celebrities into the printed word. Uh, you know, she, she would demand copy mm. approval and change things uh, before articles went out. Uh, pioneer of super expensive gig tickets. She was, as far as I'm aware, the first pop artist to break the £100 barrier for tickets in the UK. Shooter of grouse. Wearer of dead chinchillas. I once saw her <sighs> perform wearing a coat made of 40 chinchillas. Espouser of... Know she's like Mr. Burns with tits. Espouser of Reaganite, <laughs> Thatcherite values in Material Girl. And I don't care if anyone mm. tells me it's ironic. Um... Yeah, I could probably come up with eight Madonna songs I like, um, but she's a fucking awful human being, just a dreadful woman, and this song is
3: completely boring. Mm. Where, where, where is Madonna in 1994? Because she's gone through this this sex thing with uh, you know with Lenny Kravitz and uh, all, all that kind of shit, and she's she's ripped yeah. off gay people in in Vogue. I mean, where does she stand now Uh, in uh, 1994?
4: Well, now she's she's kind of trying to behave herself a little bit and do a really, really dull song Mm. for a film that, like Pricey says, none of us have seen. Um, She is, for all the reasons that Pricey listed... um, uh, the pop star, I find it least easy to like at all. She's Like I've said before, I think on Chart Music, she is the musical equivalent of Thatcher in that we're kind of asked to basically admire the ambition, Mm. no matter what she does. Just admire the ambition and the drive, and I fucking hate that. Mm. Um, The lyrics are kind of objectionable to this song for a start off, but Mm. the thing I mainly object to with this video in particular is the... I For me... The best sort of video soundtrack from a film um, tie-in was Luther Vandross. Give me the reason because he's totally intrusive into the film, which I think is ruthless creatures, or ruthless people rather. Um, he he invades the kind of film in a sense and walks in on stills and stuff like yeah. that. With Madonna watching it politely, you know, as if she's soundtracking the actual yeah. film and really thinking about it. Um, that kind of wound me up. So yeah, a pass. As ever with Madonna, to be honest with you. She's
3: glammed herself up a bit for uh, for a day in the studio, hasn't she? Which I'm sure she doesn't do in real life. What you say now, that people
5: put makeup on to be in videos, and I'm not quite sure I follow your point.
3: Well, no, because she's supposed to be in the studio recording this thing, and she's looking at it, and she's <laughs> soundtracking it. It's like, no, Madonna, you don't fucking dress like that when you're in the studio, I bet. Oh, right. I bet, right. You're, I bet you've got your fucking dressing gown on and a fag on, and... uh she, The... I just felt lied to Simon <laughs> <laughs> the thing is you know take that kind
4: of build it up before it comes on like it's a big moment a new Madonna video and I'm sure at this point she was a total irrelevance I don't yeah, think anyone, I'm sure take, take that really ca- gave a fuck <laughs> yeah I don't think anyone really cared about what
5: although doing. apparently still having top 10 hits which is just bizarre you know? oh she, yeah when ridiculous she, you know, she seems about as far from the zeitgeist in 94 as maybe she's ever been um, but still mm. having top 10ers weird
4: This was also up for um, the same Oscar that Bruce Springsteen um, won. Yeah, and Elton John, Elton John's song from the Lion King, I think, or was it (laughs) right? (laughs) Was uh, second. Uh, Madonna's song came third, I think, in the vote. Um, But yeah, yeah, they, they, they were they were all nominated. But Bruce won it, rightfully so, I guess.
3: Yeah. So two weeks later, I'll remember, was the highest new entry at number 10, and then moved up to number 7, its highest position. The follow-up, Secret, got a number 5 in October of this year, and the follow-up to that, Take A Bow, only got to number 16, breaking Madonna's streak of 36 top 10 singles since Like A Virgin in late 1984. Fucking hell, that's astounding. Particularly if, if, I was point, if I was on Pointless and the question was name a Madonna song from the 90s, I'd be fucked. Rain and Secret. This one I'm talking about. Top 10
5: hits, never heard of them. Yeah, but somebody's buying that stuff.
4: She must have just had a strong enough fan base for just the fan base to buy it and it get, to get in the charts, I guess. Big enough. Yeah. Like with Michael That's Jackson. That- I bet there's loads of 90s Michael Jackson songs you've never heard or mm. sort of, you know, are that mm. familiar with because he kept on having it but most of us don't know those songs because you know they're not that good.
1: I'll remember
4: okay, this next song is definitely worth a listen. Unfortunately, it's
2: just outside the top forty at the moment, but it's a great song by a great guy, Rocheford. Only to be with you.
5: I used to live my life as fast and free, as I feel. Right down to the bone, there was a rolling stone. just want to be free.
3: Formed in 1987 in London, Roachford took their name from their singer, Andrew Roachford. Their debut single, Cuddly Toy, got to number 61 in July of 1988, but when it was re-released six months later, it got to number four. This is the follow-up to Get Ready, which got to number 22 in May of 1991, and has just entered the charts at number 41. Now, the only thing I can add to the conversation about Roachford, and I'm getting it in now so I can just, I don't know, just sit back and have a fag or something, is that i I actually saw Roachford in Rock City in 1988 and the only thing I can remember about it was my mate being trapped behind some really fat lad who kept jumping up and down so he uh, he was just basically frotting him throughout the whole gig <laughs> and he, he shouted cuddly toy, cuddly toy over and over again for an hour
5: like Homer Simpson and, when he sees yes. Batman Turner overdrive he's going play you ain't seen nothing yet Hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. And uh, no, 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 no new crap, no new crap.
3: <laughs> and I was just stood there just laughing. I thought it was very entertaining. Uh, so uh, has anybody else got something <laughs> constructive to say about this performance? First of all,
5: what do we all know about Roachford? What's the one thing that everyone knows about Roachford? That he shat himself on stage. Yes, yes he shat himself on stage. We, we, got to, we, we can't not talk about that, right? No. Um, and, and and the proof of this is that there's a website uh, called Roachford shat himself on stage. stage.blogspot.co.uk <laughs> So, that's all you need to know. Um, yeah, apparently he shat himself on stage while wearing... Well, no, 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 wearing...
3: but, uh, no maybe we need to know a bit more, Simon. Do exp-
5: explain. Well, I mean, it, it might be urban myth, but why let the truth get in the way of a oh, great God, yeah. uh, story? So, yeah, supposedly Roachford shat himself on stage while wearing light-coloured or white trousers. Uh, but <gasps> he's not the only one. I've looked into this. Ed Sheeran's done it. Um, as Lily as Allen. As a... Lily Allen's mm. done it. And of oh. course, Fergie out of Black Eyed Peas pissed herself on stage.
4: Yes, she pissed herself. Yeah. So,
5: but Rocheford was the pioneer um, of of shitting himself on stage. I think. Well, I met, <laughs> you know, him and and Gigi Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You beat me to it. Uh.
3: <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> By the way, do you notice that in the intro to this... See, this is what they ought to do. Roachford should have just rolled about in it and said, look, this is my new direction. (laughs)
5: Do you you know... And the the audience just said,
3: this is our new direction, getting the fuck away from you, you dirty bastard. He
5: he, he could have smeared it all over himself and and he'd look like the slits on the cover of their first album or something. It would have been amazing. Yes. Um, Yeah. But do you notice in the intro to this that um, Robbie... Has to roll his eyes and mug behind Mark's back because yeah. he yeah. he cannot abide yeah. somebody else being the centre of attention.
3: I That's know. something i really I noticed know. about
5: that little intro there. It's started again, to
3: get on my tits by this stage. D- in during show.
5: this song, everyone in the audience is doing that inane clap 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 thing again. Yeah, which is fucking yeah. do my head in. um the the song it's 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 nothing isn't it? The, it what what me yeah. up though is uh, uh, I I looked up the lyrics. I thought there's there's got to be something to this, got to be something to take away from this song, and the opening lines are, I used to live my life just fast and free and do as I feel right down to the bone. I was a rolling stone. Oh really, Roachford? And then I shit and then myself. I shat myself. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest. The, the, <laughs> I mean, apart from the story of him shitting himself, which you know is is worth Roachford existing, just for that. Uh, the other thing, of course, is the opening sequence of Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge film. We've all seen that, right? right Where he's yes. driving to work and playing Cuddly Toy in his car and really committing to it, really going for it. <laughs> so just, just for that scene and for the shit in himself, it's worth Rocheville existing. But fucking hell, <laughs> this song, it's just Absolutely. you know,
4: um, a, a, uh, an
5: empty car pulled up and this song
4: got out. Uh, well, it's not like Pricey said, it's an utterly mediocre record. And, and this, by 94... I, I, I was surprised to see this um, like I was surprised to see Alison Moyet but it just proves out of mind place tricks yeah, I
3: was more shocked to see uh, Roachford on this top of the pops than I was Alison Moyet to be honest yeah
4: but in both cases I thought this is the stuff weren't we past this stuff you know was this still going on Roachford mm, was such yeah. an early 90s thing a really early 90s thing late 80s thing um, but these people still haven't shifted. You know, when you look at the charts, the people that Pricey was talking about earlier, like Carter and Sensor, they've been around for a few years by then. So things mm. took, a, you know, a while to shift. They didn't disappear so quickly. Oddly enough, I probably did exactly the same Google search that you guys did, looking for who else had shot himself on stage. But all I found <laughs> was a headline that really stuck with me for some reason. Um, and this has nothing to do with pop people who shot themselves on stage. It's just the first thing that came up for some reason. Tomatoes pictured growing in human excrement flushed onto a railway track by train toilet. That's um uh, that's what <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great ban now. That, that's isn't the it? Daily Mail, that's their headline. Tomatoes oh, pictured well, There growing you go in then. Human. Uh, very strange but yeah an utterly mediocre song we've got quite a few of those in this episode yes um yes you know giving the light i mean i i remember on i know, I know we we're all saying kind of fuck the 90s and it was pretty horrible i remember having a good time in the 90s but i don't remember the charts being mm. this bloody awful um
3: mm, no. they, they really are terrible isn't it
4: a lot of, a lot a lot of
3: dross i mean you're kind of waiting for him to shit himself just to, to just <laughs> pick the show up a bit aren't you yeah Yeah. So the following week, Only to Be With You, entered the top 40 at number 22, then stayed at number 22, then moved up to 21, then back down to 22. The follow up, Lay Your Love on Me, got to number 36 in June of this year, and his last chart hit was The Way I Feel in October of 1997. He's still out there doing it, though. I've seen him in the gig listings.
5: Yeah. You know, wearing adult nappies. Good on him. I don't know. Yeah.
2: Definite batteries for cars, not so long ago up, they were joy riding in up, them, now they're slipping in them. It's rock set sleeping in my car. Up, I tell you what I go, I tell you
1: what I do I've been
2: Riding all night just to get close to you
3: Formed in Hallstatt, Sweden in 1986, Set, Marie Fredriksson and Pierre Gessel were named after a Dr. Feelgood song. They first entered the UK charts in 1987 when The Look got to number 7 in May of that year and recorded two top 5 singles in the early 90s with It Must Have Been Love and Joyride. This is the first single from the new LP, Crash Boom Bang, and the first Set chart single since the re release of It Must Have Been Love, which got to number 10 in october of 1993 and it's a new entry at number 14 there was a lot of re-releasing of 80s stuff in the early 90s wasn't there yeah ridiculous what was going on why did people suddenly crave 1983 i don't remember that the 80s coming back in
4: the 90s i recall that happening in the early noughties but in the 80s mm. i mean the thing is bands like rock set are kind of 80s-ish and hanging around for a long long yeah. time And transparently mediocre though they are, I do think that they have... I do think that they've had an influence in a way, in a weird way. Because when... Explain Listen to this song on this episode of Top of the Parks and listen to the way the bands sound and then go and listen to a record by, I don't know, The Enemy or Biffy Clyro Mm. or somebody like that and that kind of polished rawness, that kind of really dull kind of rock production, that's exactly what those bands sound Mm. like. I'm not, they won't admit mm. to listening to Roxette, of course, but there's an uncanny kind of... But then again, we wouldn't <laughs> admit to
3: listening to The Enemy, would we now? No, no,
4: we wouldn't. But I mean, there's an uncanny similarity of sound. Although actually, I, I suspect if you went to see Roxette, they'd probably rock harder than any of those bands. Um, mm. But it's another boring song in you know with the audience going utterly crazy even though at the end there's a massive howl from the audience even though nobody's actually shouting so they're not only just Mm. sort of taping the 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 noises the crowd are making they're adding more just to add to the sense of mayhem i guess i wonder sometimes when i watch this episode of top of the pops whether they were starting to feel the pinch i guess from the word and they were trying to get some of that kind of you know when the word had bands yeah. on and the kind of camera be out in the yeah. audience spinning around a little bit more and kind of trying to get it a bit yeah. crazy. i I'm get. I, I wonder if they were aiming for that kind of thing in the presentation of stuff.
3: But um, what asking asking set to get the fanis <laughs> out and stuff like that. No, no, but, <laughs>
4: but you know, just kind of trying to compete with that um, a little bit more and make the show make the show <laughs> cool in a way that Top of the Pops never really was. Top of the Pops wasn't about being cool necessarily. Um, it was no. about entertainment. You know what right
5: um it it tells you something about this record that um, my my main notes are I like the backdrop the uh, the Bridget Riley style op art backdrop yes. they're, they're performing in front of and I think I used to have a shirt like that um, that's, <laughs> that's, that's that's all I've got so, um I mean their their greatest hits album famously was called Don't bore us get to the chorus which which is mm. a brilliant title and they obey that rule in this song but to no great avail um the lyrics though um living in your car it's it's a bit grimly it's it's like being destitute Mm. like like murray in flight of the concords in that one episode Um, (laughs) it goes i will undress you i will caress you yeah right try doing that gracefully in a fucking car without you know (laughs) getting your getting your suspender belt caught on the gear stick or something i mean was was it even a hit uh, by the way, what, what are the stats on this?
3: We'll, we'll find out in a moment, Simon. When we finish, discuss it. You know, you, you know how it goes. Uh. so yeah. I mean, who the fuck is buying this kind of shit? The, the Rock set have always been one of those bands that I've always thought. Who are your fans? Who are your fan base? Isn't.
5: Oh yeah, but I, I. Do you know what? I, I think it's on a song by song basis. I don't think they had fans as such, but their songs had fans, and I don't think you can you can argue with right. Joyride. That's Joyride. Hello. You Fool,
3: I Love You. That's a fucking chorus right
5: there.
3: That's brilliant. <laughs> and they smack you in the face with it straight away, don't they? Like, like yeah. a lot of great songs. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put my hands up on that one. So the following week, Sleeping In My Car stayed at number 14 and then slid down the charts. I mean, that was that's pretty good by this uh, this chart standard, isn't it? You know? well we didn't go up but we didn't go down is
4: there so much mm-hmm. movement in the chart because singles aren't selling as much or because they're selling more I don't know it must be it must be that they're not selling as much mm-hmm. and that's, why they're, for- and and that's why they're formatting the fuck out of everything to make collectors buy it all
3: well, m- well maybe maybe what it could be is that people aren't treating a record shop as a board anymore you know where you go in you go oh I'll have this I'll have that and I'm, oh yeah I'll have that as well um, maybe people are just going in to buy that one record maybe maybe the kind of like fan bases are hardening and there's not there's not a lot of slippage i don't know so it's not it's not that people are anymore going
4: going to go and buy a record necessarily by a band that they're not already into to a certain extent it's it, it, uh, maybe you know the, the, the whole thing that you're going to ask at the end what are we buying this week it's, you're mm. just going to be buying what you're already into in a sense and it's going to be with a collector's mentality it's not. It, it, yeah. It's going to be with I want everything by this band not necessarily mm. oh that pop record really I love that pop record I want to go and buy it I mean that was still happening obviously yeah. but I just think that's, that's less to do with it now and it is more about those fan bases it's the whole you know yeah. it, it's kind of in a similar way to the way that football starts getting treated here that Businesses pretend that they're they're doing it for the fans and they're they're providing the fans with more stuff whilst ruthlessly exploiting the hell out of them basically.
3: Mm. And let's and let's remember that, that round about this time there there are a lot of record shops about, but there's going to be loads of them that's going to have absolutely no connection to the chart return network. You can have a record shop that's devoted to hip hop. You've got loads of um, kind of like house. Record shops. You've got your kind of like your jungle and your reggae kind of uh, record shops. So yeah, I mean, I I think I think music has diversified so much round about this time that that a lot of um, people's record buying is at at shops that have got absolutely nothing to do with chart returns and they won't have a chart return machine. So yeah, a very very strange time.
4: All a precursor to where we're at now, really. In, in, in certain ways, mm. but yeah, most of my time spent in record shops at that time. Although, of course, I loved going in the big. Whenever I was down in London, one of the things I loved doing was going in the big HMV and the big Virgin Megastore on Tottenham Court Road. I used to love doing that. But yeah. an awful lot of times, also spent in a lot, spent in a lot of you know smaller shops and specialist shops by that age. Anyway, I was no lo- the record shop was no longer a collective place, especially in Coventry, where the whole city went for music. There was, just, there was four or five record shops, and yeah. yes, there was one main one, but you, kind of, you didn't really go in mm. there that often. You, you were more likely to go in and go to a certain section of that record shop rather than look at what was in, in, in the charts, if they even bothered having what was in the charts up on the yeah. wall in order. That was becoming just more of a thing that you saw in supermarkets, not record shops. Yeah,
3: and, and of course you didn't. You know, everything was more it was far more diversified. You know, you had your pirate stations, and you know, of course you had uh, MTV was a the thing then. MTV had stopped being a luxury item and was just a, a staple, um, you know, thing. Yeah, it didn't really arrive in the UK till till the nineties.
5: It wasn't a cultural force in this country until then. Uh, you know in in mm. the 80s sure maybe in the states but um i i remember doing a, a piece for melody maker where i had to go and um i i stayed in a hotel room that had mtv and i subjected myself to 24 hours of mtv to see what it would do to me
3: it's um yeah, mate, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know if i am still recovered <laughs> <laughs> So, the follow-up Crash, Boom, Bang Only got to number 24 in June of this year And they wouldn't have another top 20 hit Until 1997 with Wish I Could Fly Roxette would go on to be the first group Since Wham! to perform in China And were asked to change the lyrics Of this single But they didn't Good on them
2: The top 40. And you can see all this week's predictions during tonight's number one. But here is the top ten. At ten, Breathe Again by Tony Braxton. At nine, I like to move it reel-to-reel featuring the Mad Stuntman. Falling two to eight, we have Enigma with Return to Innocence. At number seven, it's a pretty good year for Tori Amos. And at MP at number six with Grenades. At number five, a new entry, Girls and Boys, Blur. Saw earlier, Bruce Springsteen at number four, highest entry. And at number three, the sign, Ace of Base. Falling one to two is Mariah Carey without you. Here's a band that stands themselves all the way to number one, the Fresh from Holland. And they're here in the studio tonight, it's Duke with Duke. <laughs>
3: Williams and Owen stand in front of a shopping trolley filled with balloons and mock soap powder packets for the number one single, Dupe by Dupe. Formed in 1994 by Ferry Ridderhoff and Peter Gonewski, Dupe were a techno duo from Holland. And that's all I fucking know about them. (laughs) This single was last week's highest new entry at number three and is not without you by Mariah Carey off the top of the charts. You know. It's got that in its favour at least. What a fucking awful <laughs> song that is. I don't oh.
4: mind the song. I'm not, I, I don't mind the song. I don't like that version of it
3: particularly. Oh, well, I, yeah. I hate the song and I hate that version of it as well. It's, it's a double whammy of shitness for me. But yeah, that, I, I, I do believe that song. All the ills of the, the music world nowadays can be pinpointed to that song. The idea that the idea that you know to be a good singer, you've got to do the same kind of um, gymnastics as a as a heavy metal guitarist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Hate it, hate it, hate it. You can it.
4: you can blame Mariah for that a little bit. You can blame Whitney for that as well. I think. Oh yeah, yes. Whitney, big time. Yeah.
3: So this song, where do we start? Let's start with the performance because I mean it's the only it's the nearest thing we we're going to get to a, a bit of um a bit of satisfaction in this episode isn't it <laughs> The two blokes have been wisely pushed off to the side and we've got some kind of uh some flapperage going on if you know what I mean Now that sounds far worse than it actually was lots of g- lots of girls dressed up as flappers and dancing the Charleston yeah, I
5: I had a mad old auntie who was an original flapper in the thirties, and uh, when she'd had a few wow. yeah, and when she'd had a few sherry's at Christmas, she'd get up and do the Charleston, and she loved this record. So, I I, I do feel yeah. quite fond of it just because of that. Um, this record is no fair enough this record is is proof if proof be need be that Electro Swing was actually invented 10 years earlier at least than is usually claimed <laughs> yeah. people think yeah, people yeah. think Electro Swing peaked with We No Speak Americano by Yolanda B. Cool and D, D Cup or DCUP or whatever it is in 2010 but this is 94 and this is basically where, where it starts isn't it and I know a lot of people fucking hate Electro Swing and I, I can see why, why they do find it so, so annoying but there's something mm. about I don't know I I don't even know what drug you'd need to be on in order to fully enjoy. Maybe it's like Haribo or something, uh, or or, sun, or <laughs> you know Sunny Delight, but, but a fucking bathtub gin. If yeah yeah, but if you're in a very specific mood, this record does kind of work. Um, you maybe only need to hear it once or one and a half times in your entire life. But there's something yeah. there's something initially appealing about it and that's probably how you get a number one record and then people buy it and then they never fucking play it again but it doesn't matter because they've they parted with their money yeah but this yeah, has yeah, been
3: you... in charts for two weeks already and it, yeah, oh, yeah, it well, went that, up that blows my theory out of the water then <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's gone where blur and um <laughs> and Tori amos has failed to go upwards well that's because it, it it's a useful record
4: um in that and um, mm. although you wouldn't want to sit around listening to it it's kind of bounce. it's kind of bouncy, kind of bouncy no. castle music. It, it it I'm sure I think people bought it for kids parties and stuff like that. It just it would drive any kid mental and it would just make them jump up and down until they're exhausted and it's a kind of useful record in that respect. And if you're a crap DJ um you know playing awful <laughs> awful records, this is a record you need. Um this will start the party mm. off. This will get the kids on the dance floor etc. Um so I I think it was just a useful record that people the people needed. Um, I only need to sort of hear it once. There were better Eurobeat things in the yeah. chart when you think that Real to reels in there and 2 Unlimited are in there as well. This is more... I was gonna a- say There mm. were better Dutch
5: records in the chart. Yeah. You know, 2 Unlimited, Let the Beat Control Your Body which is, for me, their best single. Yeah,
4: fantastic song. I mean, that golden era of um, that stuff. I remember Prices cover feature of 2 Unlimited and I remember Eurobeat being one of the things that, uh, you know, Melody Maker... Uh, We're always. It was always lovely praising pop, knowing that it kind of wind up the more mouth breathery, lad rocky elements of our readership. So, (laughs) so um, plus some of those records (laughs) were the greatest records of their time. You know, of course, you know when you Mister Vane, Culture Beat, fucking
5: up. And and if you remember,
4: you know the early nineties. Properly and don't believe the lies that have been said as these anniversaries come by. That it was all about Nevermind or fucking screamer delica or part life. For uh, you know, it was also mm-hmm. about let me be your fantasy and things like that. And 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 it was all you yes, know. It was, yeah. it was about records like that. For me, those are those '90s records that really get me in the heart. Those kinds of um, Eurobeat tunes far more than any Britpop. Um, certainly, any blur record.
5: Yeah, I, I had a bit of a night of that recently. A bit of a sort of a YouTube rabbit hole of just playing stuff like Living Joy and yeah, Living Joy, man. all, all oh, of man, that. Man. Yeah, and Grace and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just it's it's still fantastic music when you're in the right mood for it.
4: Yeah, whereas duper kind of more the Joy of Bunny Rednecks end of things to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. no, kind of pasty. Yes, yes. Um, fun performance, but yeah. It, I'm sure you know anyone listening to this now would think this is Electro Swing 10 years before it's time absolutely Top of the
3: Pulse for some reason has got a ticker running underneath the actual performance of their number one single where they predict the new entries for the next week Um, Bon Jovi D-Ream Sounds of Blackness Brand New Heavies Rock Set and The Wonder Stuff and what do you know they all came in Mm -hmm. as new entries what was the fucking point of that it's almost like the whole thing's a fix. Yeah, that's what and, it feels and, like, not it? And we it? are
5: mere easily duped pawns, yeah. uh, gaping oh. uh, with our mouths dri- dribbling at this, this spectacle <laughs> that's put before us like peasants at, uh, at the
3: Roman Colosseum. We're, we're, we're duped by, while listening to dupe. Hey. It's, like it's, it's like Top of the Pops is, is shitting its own nest here, isn't it? We used to be a chart show, but now we're this. And we give you video exclusives.
5: Yeah, I hate that. I've, I mean, um, it's 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 been a sort of uh, recurring thing throughout Top of the Pops history that they'll have records on there that aren't in the charts, and I, I've I've never felt right about it I know. in in whatever format that that may be. I always think mm. you should earn your place on the show, not not just sort of fluke your way into it by either being in reception, as they say, or by just dint of being a massive megastar.
3: So dupe would stay at number one for two more weeks before being usurped by Everything Changes by Take That. The follow-up, Huckleberry Jam only got to number 88 in March of 1995 and then they rebranded as Hocus Pocus. They were never heard of again in the UK.
1: Bye.
2: just about it for this week. Tune in next week when Simon Mayo is live in the studio. Plus we've got some celebrity friends doing an exclusive on next week's show. Who's that then mate? Us. Oh yeah. It's Dream. Enjoy. Thank you very much. See you. Bye
5: bye.
1: I took a at the first
3: so, what's on TV afterwards? Well, BBC One is showing EastEnders with Grant and Phil Mitchell throwing their weight around on Tricky Dick. David Attenborough follows some gazelles about in Wildlife on One. There's an episode of the sitcom Nelson's Column, which was the Happy Shopper Hot Metal, and then Crime Watch and Question Time. BBC Two is running life with Fred about the childhood of Fred Dibner Jeremy Clarkson is arsing around in a Fiat Punto in Top Gear the Dawn French sitcom Murder Most Horrid is on and then a documentary about South Africa preparing for its first democratic elections ITV is screening an episode of The Bill followed by a repeat of the first ever episode of Minder a documentary about commandos and goes right through the night with heavy metal show Noisy Mothers Prisoner Cell Block H, Get Stuffed, and Job Finder. Well, Channel 4 has The Royal Collection, The Great Outdoors, a Chinese drama series called Beyond the Clouds, The Rector's Wife, Vickers, and Sex Talk. So, my dears, what are we talking about in The Office tomorrow?
4: I'm probably not talking about Top of the Pops tomorrow in The Office. All Playground. No. was the thing. It had lost all import by then. And it was only occasionally threatening to be interesting in, in kind of moments of controversy. And the, and the thing is, you know, that list of TV programs that you read out normally when you do that, of course, on the other chart music things, it's, it's a thing of wonder hearing what else was on. But listening mm-hmm. to that list of programs, it was like, well, that could be on tomorrow night. You know what I mean? It, 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 there's a continu- yeah. There is a continuum from this time, from the 90s to now. It doesn't even that yeah. I don't remember Noisy Mothers.
5: Do you remember Noisy Was it was it Noisy with a Z and Mothers M U T H A S by any chance? No.
4: I remember Noisy Mothers. It was just a bloke on his sofa um and and occasionally bands being interviewed and occasionally playing live. All oh, right. Like rock child and whatnot. I don't even think it was bands that big. It it was it was it was like a local thing almost Noisy Mothers. But um yeah, same time slot as Hitman and Her, as I recall. But I mean, oh, right. yeah. we're already now into the period where telly doesn't go off at midnight and telly, no. you know, you know, it doesn't start up at five o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. We're, yeah. we're sort of near to where we're at now. I know it's a long time ago, but but we're sort of near to where we are, at, we are now. And where we are now is we don't have a weekly pop music show about the charts mm. um, on telly because it doesn't matter to enough people. And I think yeah. that has already started. if you're literally asking what
5: were we talking about in the office and going back to the start of the chat when we're talking about Melody Maker yeah (laughs) I think if I'd I'd happened to catch uh, you know uh, Blur on Top of the Pops we'd all be saying that in a very kind of cold calculating business way ah right Blur on top of the Pops last night. You see that? They're number five. Okay, we should probably get them on the cover next week. Have we got an interview with them? No? Okay, well, let's cobble something together. Because mm. they're obviously making their move. Blur, obviously, on the Ascendant. That's how. That's what we'd be doing. Yeah. Um, there, there wouldn't be anything mind-blowing. There'd be nothing like, Oh, my God, did you see that? It would just be like,
1: mm.
5: Okay, um... I can see that uh, the pieces on the board are shifting and Blur
4: are making their move. Sorry, I'm trying to think, were there any exciting is Top of the Pops moments that have really stuck in my mind? And I can't really think of many. I remember Pulp's performances massively, but perhaps that's just because I was fond of that band. Um, I don't mm-hmm. remember anything... Major other than that, yeah, for the rest of the 90s,
5: yeah. I mean, I'd say the Mannix uh, again, yeah. I'm fond of, of that band, but but James appearing with, yeah. with his uh, supposedly IRA style balaclava and all the fire going off and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> the, the the one we're supposed to talk about, obviously, is Blur versus Oasis, isn't it? But uh, yeah, wasn't that bothered about that? No, it's yeah. concocted,
3: and that was played out more in the tabloids yeah. than it was on any pulp shows, yeah. But that, that particular episode
5: where it's who's going to be number one and all of that. So what are we buying on Saturday? Uh,
4: well, I'm not buying anything off Top of the pups. No. Um, <laughs> you know, it's such a brilliant... You know, it's, it's kind of weird deflating watching this episode because 94 was was a fantastic year for music it was it was and, a fucking
5: brilliant year for music
4: it was a great great year for music and what i'd be buying i don't know Sepultura, royal trucks um mob deep i don't know i'd be buying all kinds of different things at the weekend there's shitloads of amazing music in 1994 um this episode gives not even a glimpse of of any of it
5: yeah i completely agree i think 1994 was probably the peak quality wise of 90s music um If you just Mm. uh, look at the, uh, well, for example, the end-of-year Melody Maker that Neil was talking about, you would just see um, dozens of albums that are just absolute classics. Um, But from this episode, well, if you're going to be pedantic or literal about it, I wouldn't buy anything because I was getting all my records sent to me for free because I was (laughs) a disgusting, privileged music journalist. (laughs) But um, if there was one that I'd be hoping to get in the post, it would be Girls and Boys by Blur because... um, as annoying as they may have become, and whatever else you want to say about them, I still think Girls and Boys mm. is a great pop single.
3: I mean, I look at this episode, and I really wasn't looking forward to doing a 90s one, and I uh, I was right not to, because I'm looking at this and thinking, oh, fucking hell, no wonder Northern Uproar had to happen. <laughs> the thing about this episode it's a lot slicker it's a lot more professional people are better dressed and it's boring as fuck yeah Mm, mm. no sense of event even though they're trying to create it by saying oh we've got you know exclusive of this Uh and exclusives of that well it's like your top of the pops it should be you Mm. know Mm -hmm. everything you do should be a fucking exclusive yes yeah I mean, I'm sure we're going to do the '90s again, but I fucking hope we get a better one than this one. This is the least. This is the least enjoyable chart music I've, I've done. So, what does this episode tell us about 1994? Well, for me, I just get this sense of lots of kind of hustle and bustle, lots
5: of the kind of outward signifiers of excitingness and action, but nothing underneath to justify it. And whether that's purely. Mm. Uh, so, you know whether that's purely uh, th- this episode or it says something about the wider culture. I don't know. Um, I think you could extrapolate and say that we needed blah blah. Whether it's Britpop, we needed something to happen. Um, and I I I think you know to, to say we needed Britpop to happen would be limiting because Britpop became quite 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 a limited movement. Mm. But we certainly needed more acts like like yeah. Bjork and like Blur um, to to break through and to yeah. Boot out the Roachfords and Madonnas, and f- from from the show and and from the charts. We needed people like Tricky and Underworld and, um, you know, so you know, basically not 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 purely guitar bands. We we needed just acts who were in any way trying to push things forward to actually get get the their deserved recognition and actually sell enough records to break the top forty. And before long, that did start to happen.
4: I think there's a there's a combination in this episode of like you say the slickness but also like you say the neediness of Top of the Pops. It's kind of so pleased that we've got this exclusive video from a big star I and mean, it and it should be an honour to be on Top of the Pops and bands should act like it's an honour and, and, and put on a show. And I, I just don't really get enough of this from this episode. Apart from Bjork, actually. Um if all of the artists on this had songs as good as that and a presence as good as that, maybe I'll be thinking completely differently. Mm. But with this episode, I'm thinking that this is the start of just, yeah, the takeover of PR and the kind of takeover of, I don't know, an, an over control, an over sort of heavily, heavy handed control of things, just squeezing all the joy out of it. Um, yeah. It's functional, it's slick but it, it's got a precious little pleasure Did, to it. There's, there's no pleasure to it. And do you know what really much, struck too many me? Too shit songs.
5: Do you know what really struck me? is that over the uh, closing credits, we've got D-Ream doing not Things Can Only Get Better, but the other song that no one remembers. And it's over a montage mm. of the show as a whole. Because Of the show, because, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. the show has been so fucking forgettable that they've got to rattle through this montage just to remind yeah. you what the fuck has been <laughs> That's on.
3: true, isn't it? You know, next time we slag off Dave Lee Travis, I'm going to have to think very hard. <laughs> no, I'm not, actually. I'm lying about that one. No.
4: Partly, it's perhaps to do with the producers becoming TV producers and nothing really to do with music. So, they, they yeah, you know, choose the good fucking records. There are roundabout five or six good records in this chart that would have yeah. made for a great show. But it's so fucking dull because of people like Tori Amos and people like... You know ro- fucking Roachford um, it's an yeah. aggravating re- episode, and consequently it does remind me of the night is I spent most of the night is scowling um <laughs> I'm sorry neil <laughs> and and I am again. it has left me in exactly the same way, but I'm you know, like I say at the weekend, I wouldn't be buying fucking anything on this on this episode
3: yeah and the other thing of course is that um everyone's cool, but the cool people are always the most boring people and that's all i got to say about that that's a great final word, the cool people are always the most boring people cut <laughs> so, Bob Crazy Young says that is the end of this episode of Chart Music, all that remains for me is to um, give the usual promotional bullshit out, so that is uk. you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash podcast. or you can join us on Twitter at T O T P. Thank you very much for your time, Simon Price. You're welcome. A pleasure talking to you, Neil Kulkarni. Thanks, Al. My name's Al Needham. I have not shit myself on stage, ever.
1: <laughs> Sharp music.
3: Sisters, Simon Rhodes putting the sound into your head. Tonight, Indie Club
4: brings you Colon, the most talked about new act since Kurt Cobain did some interior
3: decorating with a gun and his brain. Already, the corporate halls of the new sick biz are on their backs with their legs wide open, waiting for Colon to show them just how dangerous music can be. Like a one-hand grenade going off in a convent, no-one's heard anything like this before. But by Christ, it's loud and it's dangerous. See them tonight at the Dublin Castle. £3.50 on the door or £3 concessions, which is the only concession Colon will ever make because they would rather die than compromise. Everything you know is wrong because Colon are here. Give it up for Colon with Kick in the Sun.